Welcome to episode 76 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. This is Russ over here, and over on that mic is... Yeah, this is Mike. Mike on the mic, as the BC boys would say. It's been a busy week at Adult Music. Yeah, it has. Yeah, what, what did we do this week? You're gonna, you're gonna, I guess you're going to want to announce that. Go ahead. Friday morning, we recorded an interview with one of the top alto sax players in the world, Rudresh Mahantapa. He talked to us for about an hour. It was almost an hour long. He was uh, he was very eloquent too. And we'll be having that up uh, later this week. That's going to go up Japan time, five a.m. It's set to go out on Thursday morning. And so that'll be New York, four p.m. Wednesday. And in Europe, somewhere in between, you'll probably be sleeping. So be sure to check that out. But check it out. It was really interesting. He was uh, he, had, uh, he had a lot of interesting things to say. And Rudresh is going to be in New York for the first time since 2019 and making his debut live performance at a Smoke Jazz Club mm-hmm. coming up later in August, I think 25th to 28th. So you find out information about that uh, when the interview gets released. And uh, if you're in New York or you can get there and uh, you want to see some great, exciting jazz, he's going to be there with this trio in a celebration of Charlie Parker's upcoming birthday, which is actually August 29th. And he won't be doing all Charlie Parker material, but it will be in the spirit of Charlie Parker. Pieces that Charlie Parker used to like to play as well. So, right. you know. Yeah. So check out that interview. Yeah. And he, he tells us they might, he, he didn't really say they would do this, but he said they might um, wear their superhero costumes that they wore on the Hero Trio uh, album, at least in the CD. I guess you can see pictures of them in the, on the internet somewhere yeah. if you do a search. And uh, But he didn't. He's, he was undecided at the time whether they yeah. were going to do that. So you have to go show up to find out. It would be fun. I think it might be weird after three years to show up in a superhero costume. If it was just like a change of pace, <laughs> it would be cool, you know. You know people would probably want to see you at that point because they haven't seen you in three years. Anyway, yeah, interesting interview. He yeah. was uh, he was very eloquent, as he is in his in his playing. And, um, yeah, it'll be entertaining. I was really kind of riveted the whole time. I really didn't say much. I was like, wow, this is really interesting. All right, tonight we're going to have uh, lots of organ uh, to get down on uh, in our recordings. Uh, one classical yeah. and the jazz is all organ. But before we get into that, I want to remind everyone in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for every recording we're going to talk about. Also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist, all the music in one place on Deezer streaming platform. Uh, you can also follow us there, get all the past playlists in one spot, look for us, Adult Music Podcast. And if you can't see the full description on whatever app or platform you're on, come over to our host site, podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, mm. be able to follow everything clearly there. If you enjoy the podcast, do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. And if you take a moment, give us a ranking, write a review. That helps us get listed in the category recommendations and we get more listeners. That makes us happy, so we'd appreciate that. Also, come over, find us on Facebook. The link's also on our Podbean page or just look us up and you can leave a message or comment there. Also, get some extra content, uh, usually a couple recommendations uh, almost every day from me for jazz, uh, sometimes a little bit of musical humor, extra information. Russ has been busy over there putting up the uh, Facebook posts. I've got a few up. I don't know. You you yeah, I try to find a lot of material. If I get a few every day that I find, I'll take the one that sounds best to me and put it up there. There's one there right. today I'll talk about later. It would have fit in today's episode, but it just came out, so it's too late. <laughs> but there's oh. a connection to one of the recordings, so I'll bring that up later. Yeah, otherwise, if you have any comments, questions, uh, 
you want to get in touch directly, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. So we got organ this week, and I was I figured I had to use use my organ. I had to match that with an organ uh, an organ wor- uh, album. And uh, let me ask you: um, Has there ever been uh, a classical organ recording that hasn't sounded good? They all do. It's almost like engineers have this uh, natural way of recording church organs. These big. I guess you just set up the mic in the middle of the church, and boom, it's just there. They always sound fantastic on recordings. Yeah, they really capture the. The huge the whole range of the instrument. nature that, and all the different yeah. sounds and also the sense of space mm-hmm. that you're in this huge kind of chamber. And this was no exception. On this yeah, one. this was no exception. Uh, you know, I, I can't think of a... So if, if you're looking for a classical organ recording, you like the organ, just, <laughs> I recommend any one you find, <laughs> really. I, I guess some are better played than us, but they all sound fantastic. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah, and this one uh, does too. This one is... Let's just get right into it, I guess. Um... Johann Sebastian Bach and Arvo Pert. So we have a, um, <laughs> and it's called Bach and Pert, um, <laughs> rather predictably. But um, who who are these people? Well, Johann Sebastian Bach, everybody knows, the greatest uh, organ composer of all time and probably the greatest composer of all time, too. And then there's Arvo Pert, who's a contemporary composer. I think he's 80 now. He's um, I, I remember his birthday is September 11th, just because it's September 11th, right? right? But uh, so I think he's, he's in his 80s now. And he's still actively composing. He's got a huge um, list of um, his oeuvre now. Okay, get that French word in there. Oeuvre. Okay. And uh, yeah, he's still going strong. He um, is the most uh, composed um, contemporary composer in most, the most performed contemporary composer in the world. Uh, his works are programmed more than any other contemporary composer. And uh, if you hear them, you'll see why. Yeah, these were particularly austere on the organ i thought and right uh, i did you know this is another one of those pairings that i thought uh, is this going to work but uh, interestingly uh it's a fitting contrast that sort of gives your brain a little switch time uh, in between the bach numbers yeah it's not a harmonic contrast either it's just a contrast of mood mm. um, box works t- tend to be very very busy and parrots are very spare there's very there, there are moving parts in them but they tend not to be moving towards any kind of say uh end there's 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 no telos in them in other words where like the work is moving towards like some final apotheosis Mm -hmm. they just kind of they're just very steady and meditative that's why people like him anyway let's talk about this bach and pert um david bendix nielsen is the organist he is uh danish slash hungarian and based Mm -hmm. in copenhagen and uh, he's, this is on the Orchid Classics label, which I believe is a British label. Okay, so the booklet notes, um, which I went through quite uh, um, yeah, in detail here, um, call this program The Master and the Minimalist. I don't know how I feel about that hmm. because it puts well, – Bach does belong on the top, but still, parents, uh, you know. Give him something else here. The pieces were selected to create a coherent narrative as well as highlight important works by the composers. Um, Bendix Nielsen says he always aims to offer the audience an organic narrative in his concert programs. And I have to say, listening to this album, um, I listened to it straight through. So I guess it had that. I I certainly, Mm -hmm. uh, it was over quickly, even though it was about an hour, it lasted about an hour. This program wasn't very long. But, um, uh, the narrative presents the particular instrument he's playing 
at that particular concert's nuances. Okay, so this is one thing about organists. They're always playing a different instrument. And all this is this is an odd thing, too, about, you know, classical organists. Um, classical organs all sound very, very different to each other. And they have, like, these little quirks to them or th- these little personality things that make them unique. And the organist has to figure out what those are, um, especially if he's traveling around. If he... If you're you know, lucky enough to be playing the same organ, say you're a, a church organist, then you get to know them uh, really well. Um, he says that uh, the program should lead the audience through the concert as if it were a story told with ups and downs, highs and lows, powerful outbursts and meditative moments. Well, we certainly get powerful outbursts and meditative moments from this um, combination of composers. Um, in this program, Pert's meditative pieces create contrast to box, intellectual compositions, powerful settings, and beautiful chorales. The program works are also connected by tonality. Um, they are an E-flat major, E-flat minor, and they kind of move towards D major and D minor towards the end, so they're kind of in that range. Okay, so the organ, whenever you talk about a classical organ um, recording, you got to say what organ it was um, recorded on. And this one was um, recorded on a new organ built by the Danish organ builder Karsten, Karsten Lund hmm. and inaugurated at the Garrison Church in Copenhagen in 1995. Uh, the original organ's disposition, there was an organ there before this one was built. Obviously, the church is very old. The original organ's disposition and structure forms the basis for this new organ. Um, and the original organ was installed in 1724, and it was built by Lambert Daniel Castens in the North German Baroque tradition. So this organ really isn't far off from that. It's still in the Baroque tradition, so uh, Bach will sound really good on it, and he does. Um the the uh, older organ and this current one had 45 registers. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> trying to figure out 45 different? Oh, I got to I got to test out all 45 of these registers. A total of 2,861 pipes uh, divided into four what they call works, so like sections that would be. It's tuned in a historical temperament that favors certain keys, and its tonal range is slightly smaller than that of a modern organ. Okay, so in other words, it's tempered. Tuning, as opposed to, um, uh, I guess, what do we call this? Equal tuning, when there's a equal number. Sp- you know. So when that happens, you're going to get some keys just aren't going to sound right. That's probably why we have this E-flat major minor to D minor tonality going through this entire program. It's kind of interesting they would do that in a, you know, yeah. when you have this opportunity to play all this music. Um, yeah, the, reg- the uh, tonal range is a little smaller than a modern organ. Hmm, interesting. So they really stuck to the past here. All right, anyway, let's uh, get a listen to this. Um, we have a lot of the Bach uh, hits on this um, on this um, album, and the first one is Prelude and Fugue in E-flat major. Uh, the St. Anne Prelude and Fugue, well, Fugue, really, uh, BWV 552. Okay, this is nicknamed St. Anne because of the theme of the fugue. Um, it resembles the St. Anne hymn tune by William Croft, which Bach may or may not have known, so... Yeah, he might not just be using that theme. He just probably might have just picked it out. The prelude combines elements of the French overture. Now, a French overture is going to start with a more dotted rhythm. It's going to be like a stately walk. You have to imagine the king walking into the room. Da-dum! Da-dum! Okay, so it's very regal sounding. The Italian concerto, which is going to be very perpetual motion, sort of um, constantly moving, virtuosic, exciting. 
And German counterpoint. Of course, we're going to have counterpoint in a Bach work. The prelude has three themes considered to represent the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what modern um, mm. critics say. Could be true. Bach was, um, he worked with the church and he was a very religious man. Uh, the key of E-flat major has three flats, possibly furthering the Trinity symbolism. Again, we don't, yeah, maybe, but uh, maybe. we don't know. Because I think um, like modern like scholars, they kind of, they get all sort of um, excited about these little things. Oh, it has three flats. That must mean. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Anyway, this starts out like a French overture with a dotted rhythm and quickly picks up a bouncing rhythm as it moves from chord to chord at least in Bendix Nielsen's hands. Uh, the organ sounds, as I mentioned at the beginning, full and fantastic. Um, yeah, organ recordings are, as I said, usually spectacular in classical recordings, and this one is as well. Uh, the music lightens a bit at a minute and 38 seconds. We get to hear a lot of the softer colors this organ is capable of, and they're nice too, very heavenly. At 3 minutes and 7 seconds, a more contrapuntal section begins. And during all this, Bendix Nielsen does well to maintain the feeling of a downbeat, propelling the music forward by keeping perpetual motion sections moving. There's a lot of, like, motion in this particular piece. And I and he uh, really accentuates that. I really appreciated that. Um, that would be the Italian concerto influence That when you hear that. So listen at 3 minutes, 7 seconds about. At 4 minutes and 30 seconds, we get more of a French overture feel again. Now, these are all mixed up. They're not in sections. They kind of like flow one into the other and sort of morph. So it's it's not going to be ter totally easy to pull out. You don't need to. It's it's really more of like a, a fantasy type of uh, feeling. In the fifth minute, we get the downbeat continuity of the Italian concerto with some contrapuntal features. Um we get this Italian concerto feel from the fifth minute to seven minutes and 22 seconds when the momentum suddenly stops and we end with the French overture feel. On to the fugue. Um, it's a triple fugue, again, the Trinity, um, in which the uh, theme is woven into three distinct fugal patterns. So it's not really a triple fugue in that there are three themes that are all being woven into the, uh, the thing. It's just three different... It's the same theme, but there are three different patterns that it's used in... So it's a little different than what I think of when I think of a triple fugue. Anyway, the St. Anne theme itself is pretty slow and can be discerned by its slowness under the more ornate decorative lines. It moves at a slowish pace, inviting the ear into the contrapuntal web. Um, yeah, it kind of sounds a little bit like a, a cantus firmus in like a Renaissance mass. It's When it's in there, you can kind of identify it pretty easily because it moves very slowly. And usually you'll have the, uh, the uh, contrapuntal patterns just kind of dancing around it at two minutes and 36 seconds we get a more upbeat and busier theme and fugal pattern in triplets which kind of livens up the energy the saint anne theme seems to rock back and forth through this texture it's a nice effect um i seem to have missed the third fugal pattern but we end with a busy texture that resolves strongly on the tonic chord so a very famous work by bach beautifully played here showing off the sound of the album and right away on track three we get to the first of the three uh, Orville Parrot organ works. Um, this one's called uh, Pari Intervallo. And uh, Parrot arrived at his um, his compositional style, which he calls Tintinabuli, which kind of means uh, in Latin like bells. Okay. Um, in the 1970s, he called it that because 
he builds with the primitive material of the triad. This is music that's very easy to understand. We can hear triads. If you listen to Philip Glass, you know, you'll hear them a lot too. Um, and it, there's only one specific tonality. Pert himself thinks that the three notes of a triad are like bells. And that's why he took this name. It doesn't actually... It's not a bell effect, but he just thinks that the triad sounds mm. like bells. So that's why he called it that. Um, this particular piece was written in 1976 uh, for four unspecified parts and was arranged for specific instruments later. So I guess he just wrote it down and, mm. as a composition and then decided later, oh, I want these instruments to play it. Uh, the organ version was written in 1980. It's a memorial for Pert's stepfather, and uh, in the score is a quote from St. Paul to the Romans, which says, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Uh, Pari Intervalo, the title, means in the equal distance, and the music reflects this built on two parallel voices that remain the same interval apart throughout the work. You don't need to really follow that unless you really want to go in deep. It's got an intriguing opening voicing. Uh, catches your attention right away. This definitely isn't Bach. <laughs> it gets out from the opening yep. chord. Um, with a bass pedal supporting a ghostly, breathy pipes in the upper register. Um, I guess this would be one of the wind stops. Not sh I'm not sure what it would be. The texture is very spare, and the bass satisfyingly breathes its low tones into the room uh, like it's a heated carpet, in a way, only making sound instead of, uh, <laughs> instead of heat. Um I love this organ sound. You know how we're always talking about on the podcast, like we love the bass clarinet and the the reedy sound mm. that it makes it really at the low end, or the um, you know, any any kind of like low sort of bassoon notes or things like that. Um, the organ, I love the organ in this register, the more breathy register where it just sounds like the 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 the, the pipes are the organ pipes are just mm. breathing the sound out, as opposed to really just going for the more nasal reedy sound, and sometimes the big gigantic uh, organ sound that it makes. I thought this um, part piece here, it gets very flute-like, like a yeah. a large alto flute, and then almost a human voice kind of quality in the two parts. It's right in that register, so the yeah. uh, timbre really struck me on this one. Yeah, I think that's part of the uh, the appeal of this particular arrangement. Bendix Nielsen uh, lets the higher repeated notes of the theme ring rather loudly, which I appreciated. This is probably the, uh, the vocal part that you're, you just mentioned. Uh, the piece is quiet and contemplative, as most of Pert's music is, with no surprises after the opening harmony. And it just unfolds in that vein with a sense of inevitability to the music we hear. And as a result, it's deeply satisfying as a composition. We get a bell-like sense of the repeated notes of the triads, hence the Tintinabuli name. Um, Bendix Nielsen handles this very sensitively. It's a really satisfying performance. Okay, tracks four, five, and six are a concerto in D minor after Antonio Vivaldi, BWB 596. Now, I've actually, I actually know the original work this is uh, taken after. It's from Vivaldi's, um, um, from his set of 12 concertos called Lestro Armonico Opus 3. This is number 11 in that set. So um, here you're going to hear it only for the organ. Now, if you if you know the Vivaldi version, it's for violin. And it's uh, a sort of Baroque orchestra is accompanying. So there's a harpsichord and there are a lot of strings. And it's very sunny and highly rhythmic and things like that. Now, the organ is going to blunt that rhythm a little bit. Um, 
Let's see. Oh, it's for in the originals for two violins. Sorry, and obbligato cello. Um, Vivaldi's um, in this piece. Uh, he, there are three soloists, and um, the ensemble plays. And usually in a Baroque uh, concerto, you'll hear the soloist. It's a thinner sound, and then the tutti comes in, the full orchestra, and it's a big, thicker sound. Now the organ has to sort of uh, duplicate that effect. And Bach does that by distributing the material between the two manuals of the organ. So there's a, there's a fugue that sounds smoother on the organ than in the original concerto, too. But whenever you hear the music playing a little thinner or smoother, that's, the, uh, that's one register. That'll be the soloists. And uh, the fuller sound would be the full orchestra. And the opening is quietly taken, sounding rather distant. This is the first movement, Allegro now, track four. It's a charming opening for this familiar and usually full-on Vivaldi work. So there's a little bit of change of pace here. At 54 seconds into the into track four, the first movement, there's a cadence. And then a complete change of sound on the organ, which suddenly becomes much brighter and full-sounding. The softer voices would be the solo instruments in the original concerto. So we stay in this bright register, but at a softer volume for the rest of the movement. Um... Not quite as exciting as the Vivaldi version, lacking a bit of its bounce, but very enjoyable and really interesting, ingenious um, on the uh, on the organ. The uh, the middle movement, the slow movement, Largo Espicato, this is track five, has a Siciliano rhythm, and uh, you know, dun 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 dun, you know, it's like three four, and you hear a note on the third beat and then the downbeat in the first beat. It's a subdued sound to the organ as it outlines the rhythm. There's a breathy melody in the upper range weaving itself around the rhythm. Again, I love that sound. Bendix Nielsen is excellent at keeping the rhythmic profile of the work foregrounded. No slackening of the pace, which is great. And the uh, third movement, Allegro. This theme, actually, it says here, was also used by Bach in his cantata BWV 21, Ich hatte viel Bekümmernis, which means I had much grief, which I'm not familiar with, but I guess I'll have to seek it out now. Um, it has a brighter sound in this movement. Breathy solo voices are accompanied by bright, streaming tutti. The division of manuals is highlighted by the contrasting sounds, and I like the clarity with which this instrument and its varying timbres are captured. Okay, after this three-movement work, um, we get another Avropert um, organ work. This one's called Trivium. Um, this was one of the f works that introduced Parrot's concept of Tintinabili to the world in 1976. Believe it or not, before that, he was writing a lot of um, serial music, although hmm. he was looking back at ancient music as well at about that time. Um, the, the title means uh, three paths that head in the same direction uh, towards the truth. So, um, from Latin, three short sections, I mean, we're filling in a lot there. Three short sections use the same ideas varied in accordance with the tintinabular technique. So triads. And another surprising opening harmony here. He seems to like those. The melodic line unfolds. We're on our way once again to a composition that unfolds with a sense of inevitability. The material is spacey at 50 seconds and hangs around in the upper register of the organ. Uh, the line is very repetitive, but never overstays its welcome, uh, rather lulling the listener into a trance-like state, and a really good feeling one at that. There's a long pause at 2 minutes and 36 seconds, after which we get the same material stated in a powerful, bright timbre, with a lot of stops pulled out on the organ. 
We're more into the middle range of the organ now, and at 4 minutes and 57 seconds, this second section ends, then we get a third, I guess the third of the trivium, right? Three paths, which hangs around in the instrument's lower register. They all head to the same space at the end. Um, in the third section, subtle bass pedals hold down the reedy, nasal, melodic voice. The piece ends with the end of the phrase, no resolving chord. It just stops. All right, track eight. We Eight, nine, and ten are all Bach... Um, from uh, Bach chorales. Um, track eight is Bach on Wasserflussen Babylon, BWV 653, which means by the waters of Babylon. It's a contemplative piece, a saraband based on a hymn tune. The words which we don't hear here stem from Psalm 137, so you might want to look that up to get a sense of what this music is um, uh, accompanying when it's sung um a, br a breathy softer attack is heard on this relatively quiet piece for bach anyway uh clarity of constantly moving voices is well etched by the bendix by bendix nielsen and well captured by the recording um the piece maintains its calm feel throughout this is really nice i liked it a lot mm. and uh doesn't change much in mood from the previous parent work but it's nice to hear bach's constantly moving lines and this kind of more relaxed um, piece. The ninth track is um, Trio Super Herr Jesu Christ, Christ Dich Zu Uns Wend, um, BWV 655, Lord Jesus Christ Turn to Us. Uh, this contrasts with the previous um, work. It has the texture of a trio sonata and evokes a joyful text with music reminiscent of Vivaldi. A more dancing rhythm characterizes this. Bendix Nielsen uses a muted, soft attack sound on this, and I love the way the organ makes Bach's constantly moving contrapuntal lines stand out clearly, each as important as the others. Timbres on the organ shift subtly as the piece goes on. Uh, listen especially after cadences, which are very quick, like the cadence will come, and the sound the timbre of the, the organ is using will very quickly, just very subtly change. It's a really nice, subtle effect. Track 10, Allein Gott in der Höhe c'est Erre, uh, BWV 662, Alone to God, on high be honor. This has an adagio marking and ornate textures with two fugal inner parts supported by a continuo-like bass and decorated by a cantus firmus. It starts meditatively uh, with a muted attack. Um, a more brass-like voice comes in in the upper range at about uh, 1 minutes and 23 seconds, standing out from the rest. At 2 minutes and 23 seconds, we get a new section started by appoggiatura-like descending figures. The piece continues in the same mode until just before the end, where there's a sort of brief cadenza for solo voice, you know, organ voice, not, it's not a singer, but a solo line, let's say, and the piece resolves at the end. All right, track 11 is Alvaro Perret, the last of uh, his organ works on this album. Spiegel im Spiegel. This is originally, I think, for piano, because I've heard it played hmm. on the piano. And to be honest, I think it's much more effective on the organ. This was composed in 1978. Um, Spiegel im Spiegel means mirror in mirror, and it refers to an infinity mirror. Um, you could say mirrors in mirrors, too. It could also be translated that way. Um, the repeated triads, again, Tintinabuli style always involves triads, are mirrored with small variations. So what it, this piece does is very simple, but it gives you that sense of these infinite sort of, um, sort of reverberations emanating from the main mm. trio. 
uh, chords. Um, I really love the sounds and the hypnotic pacing that Bendix Nielsen conjures up for this particular um, performance. We hear arpeggiated triads straight through as the wide-ranging bass and high end provide the variations on the triadic notes. The organ is simply capable of more textures than a piano, and I found this version deeply satisfying and rather touching, too. Um, the piano version of this, I never really took to. It just kind of gets a little repetitive. I guess it depends on the pianist, though. Uh, one really gets a sense of the lovely sound this organ is capable of making in this piece, and the piece stops simply stops mid-arpeggio at the end. All right, ending this album is the famous and very big Bach, Passacaglia, and Fugue in C minor, BWB 582. Now, when I was learning what a Passacaglia was, this was the work that was used to um, uh, describe it for me, so I'm kind of very familiar with how it works because of that, you know, more so than with most other Bach works. So, and it's a very famous piece, too. Um, the, the first recordings I ever heard of this were by English organists, Simon Preston and uh, Peter Herford, and they did these big, powerful um, performances of this that were really exciting. Um, this particular piece, too, one of the reasons it's exciting is um, one thing Bach would do uh, when testing an organ was to pull out every stop and play in the richest possible texture. Um, which the booklet notes say made organ builders pale with fright. <laughs> Maybe he would break the organ or something. This work is composed in the richest possible texture. Uh, so he really wants to uh, really blow the church away with this piece. And that's important to keep in mind because the Hereford and Preston performances do just that. They're both really great. Um, I, I hope both of them did. I'm, I, I imagine they did, but I know definitely one of them recorded that because that's how I heard it. Interestingly, the notes say that in a chacon, uh, the bass theme is strictly limited to the bass, but in a passacaglia it can be used in the upper voices. So they're more or less the same, but in the passacaglia is a little more free. And in fact, the bass line in this moves up into the upper voices in what should be a very exciting moment in the uh, passacaglia. I'll mention that when it comes up. Um, so this wouldn't be a chacon. I always thought they were the same thing. They are more or less. But, okay, variations unfold over repeating bass line. And this is probably, as I said, the second most famous Bach organ work after the, of course, the ever omnipresent Toccata and Fugue in D minor right. that you hear in haunted houses across America. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a deeply spiritual work. It's also got a great fugue in it. So, you know, listen to it with reverence when you hear it on a recording. It's not on this recording, though. Anyway... The Passacaglia, Bendix Nielsen makes sure the bass line is constantly audible under the variations by giving it a buzzing, reedy sound. Its presence is always notable under the florid, bright, brassy variations being played over it. The variations don't quite dance with the joy I've heard uh, other organists from the past give the piece, like the two I mentioned, um, whose performances you know, introduced this piece to me. This performance feels more measured, more concerned with delineating the individual sounds of the variations. Yeah, no problem with that. Um, we get more of a sense of the architecture of the individual lines in this performance. Um, the choice of reedy bass sound makes the mo moment midway through the movement when the bass line leaps into a higher range all that much more noticeable and uh, breathtaking, actually, because it just suddenly disappears and it feels like we're weightless. I really love that effect. Um, the older recordings that I mentioned uh, have a, a great sense of this as well. 
it happens on this recording, if you want to check it out, at 3 minutes and 23 seconds. But, I mean, if you just fast forward to that, you're not going to get the full effect. You need to hear the bass line repeating, repeating, repeating. Classical music is all about unfolding and timing. Um, you could think of it as sort of like the way a comedian is, like he'll he'll build like to a joke. Um, classical music it will build to its effects, and sometimes over long periods of time. Like it, you won't hear it if you don't hear everything that comes before it. The composer is preparing your ear. So three minutes twenty three seconds, you could listen for that effect. But um, just keep your eye on the clock if you're and listen from the beginning. Um, we notice it's really present in its currently broken up line. Uh, then we hear it in its more staccato form in an upper register with a more buttery sound. Then at 4 minutes and 15 seconds in the upper range. So it's kind of reaching, I guess it's ascending to heaven, as you could say. You could think of it that way. The bass line reappears in the bass at 5 minutes and 58 seconds rather dramatically. It just suddenly comes back. And track 13 is the uh, fugue part of this Pasakalia and Fugue. It's a double fugue. Um, the first half of the Pasakalia theme is used as the basis of the first subject. And a transformed version of the theme's second half is used as the second subject. So they're kind of set against each other. And there's a counter subject as well. The fugue starts up right away, and we hear the familiar bass theme from the first movement now being handed from voice to voice as contrapuntal subjects are woven around it. I feel like this piece as a whole lacks some of the energy that we heard in the opening works on this recording. Um, but following Parrot's meditative works, this approach works programmatically well. And we need to remember that uh, Bendix Nielsen isn't, he's really giving a full program. He's not necessarily um, trying to do like the, to blow you away with each piece or isolating it. There's a the narrative quality that he's going for. Okay, so in uh, conclusion, for me, uh, the real discovery here are Parrot's works on the organ. Bendix Nielsen makes them sound individual and unique with the stop patterns he chooses or with the sound this particular organ makes. Now, this organ is capable of making quite a quite a few sounds. So, one of the it, there's a lot of um drama and narrative quality because of that because the registers keep changing. Your ear is constantly interested and I really enjoyed that. This is an easy hour long listen. The box pieces at the beginning really dance. All are excellent. The Pascalian Fugue at the end doesn't come across with the energy we heard in earlier works in the program, as I said. It is a big piece with a lot of sound brightly registered happening. Uh, voices are easy to pick out of the texture here. The entire program, oh, I wrote it down here, is 80 minutes long. This is a very long program. I was saying it was 60 minutes. It's 80 minutes long, but it went by very quickly. Usually I won't sit down for an entire 80-minute CD. It's a long time, and um, but for this one I did. Uh, Bendix Nielsen's idea of presenting the program as a continuous narrative may have had something to do with that. Great sound by the engineer, as so often on these organ recordings, and absolutely worth a listen. Organ recordings are always great, though. But this is really interesting. Listen from beginning to end, I would say. See if you can hear the whole program uh, without stopping. Yeah, I thought it's a gorgeous sounding organ. Lots of interesting different types of tones. There's some pipes that really sound like low brass instruments. There's the fluty but kind of rich toned ones and the more kind of vocal sounding pipes there too. You get a little bit of mixture of all of that in each of the pieces. I felt the Bach performances were really nice. They sort of impressed me at that they're at kind of relaxed tempos or mm -hmm. measured. Which right. I, Especially I mean, the in last kind of a good one, yeah. way, because you can really 
focus on what's happening and unfolding in the music rather than being impressed at the speed or technique. I feel right. he's taking a very musical approach to it. And right. although I know some of Part's music, I've never heard anything on organ, and I was wondering how that was going to fit together. But I thought mm -hmm. it actually went really well. The The pieces are kind of sparse, simple in a good way. They put you in a meditative state and... Uh, relax you in between. You can focus just on the tones of the organ and they make a better combination than what I had uh, imagined they would. And as with organ, it's a, you know, a full spectrum of sound. So this is a great test for your speakers uh, to see yeah. if they're up to the dynamics and that huge frequency range that an organ puts out from top to bottom. So yeah. put that in and uh, close the windows, make sure the neighbors aren't around and uh, fill your yeah. room with sound. And our speakers, of course, pass the um, test with flying colors because they are Dolly speakers, of course. Yeah, we like Dolly speakers. Can't go wrong with Dolly speakers. Danish uh, speakers for a Danish uh, recording. Yeah, how or, about that? Or an English recording of Danish, a Danish slash Hungarian organist in a Danish church. Mm. How do you like that? Yeah, this sounded great. I, like, I got all mm. these, these really rich sounds coming out of those speakers. It was fantastic. Okay, onwards to the second recording. This is called Musa Italiana. Oh. <laughs> uh, program, I'll explain what the program is in a moment. The conductor is Ricardo Chai, conducting the Philharmonica della Scala. And this is on the DECA record label, so a major uh, classical record label, and really a major world record label, too. Not, not world music, but record label of all kinds of music. Okay, this album celebrates music inspired by Italy. So there are no Italian composers on this, which is usually the case with the Philharmon Philharmonica della Scala but, um, and Riccardo Chai. But uh, here they've chosen um, works that uh, by German composers and Austrian composers, famous composers, that were inspired by Italy. Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony, and uh, that's really why I wanted to hear this because I'm one of these people that won't miss an opportunity to hear this really, really great work. I like it a lot. Here, though, we hear it in its revised 1834 version, interestingly enough. I'll explain what that is in a minute. Um, we usually hear the unrevised version, the, the original one. We also hear Schubert's two Rossini-inspired overtures in the Italian style, which I had never heard before, and three early Mozart overtures to Italian operas first performed in Milan. Um... So let's start with the main attraction, which is Mendelssohn's Symphony Number no. 4 in A. Not A major or A minor, but A, because it goes into both keys. Uh, the Italian Symphony, Opus 90. And this is, as I said, the revised 1834 edition, which is rarely heard. Um, there's a lot of criticism of this, but Chai, um in the notes makes a good big case for it. Uh, Mendelssohn... Um, this is in the early 19th century, so the 1800s. Like uh, many well-to-do young men at the time, took the Grand Tour between 1829 and 1831. Now, what the Grand Tour was is you would go to um, the uh, the countries where the there were ancient ruins, and uh, you would get uh, culture that way. Right, <laughs> by visiting Rome, seeing the ruin, the ruins of ancient Rome, and I guess Greece would be included mm -hmm. in this too. You, you know, you'd see the Parthenon and uh, what was left of the ancient world. 
um, and it inspired him to compose this symphony. Um, in the revised version, Mendelssohn, he revised the second, third, and fourth movements, leaving the first till later, but he never got around to it. Um, this revision was only published in 1997. So oh, wow. if you're as old as us and you heard this piece when I was young, as I did when I was younger, we only ever heard the original you know, mm. version. Uh, the revised version is a little longer than the original. Uh, the second movement has nine extra bars, the third has six, and the fourth has 41, uh, making the symphony a few minutes longer than the original. Um, this work is one of the first large multi-movement works ever to begin in a major key and end in a tonic minor. That is odd. Now, yeah. remember, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5 begins in C minor and ends in C major, so that's darkness to light. Um Mendelssohn does the opposite. <laughs> okay, yeah. It starts all sunny. I noticed that. And he, and he goes to something darker. And that's why it's called Symphony in A, all right? Not A major or A minor, okay? Because it's really in both keys. Okay. Um, track one, um, track one, movement one, Allegro Vivace. This has a swift opening and a nice decrescendo to open the piece. Uh, the bass sound is warm. The upper strings come across as very trebly in my speakers. Um, it was a, a sound I had to kind of warm through. There was nice warmth from the lower strings, though. And I'm noticing after about a minute into the piece just how fast this is being taken. Uh, the second theme at a minute and 29 seconds, a favorite of mine. Um, so listen to that. I really like this theme. It's slightly swift. Okay. But at about the tempo I'm used to hearing. So the song-like quality of it comes across. Um, so Shai slowed down a bit when once this, um, move, this um, theme came up. Um, the key thing about this um, piece is that it has to be taken lightly and a lighter orchestration usually helps with this because it has to dance it has to have that Italian sunshine to it that we're used to even from uh, early Baroque um, uh, recordings and I've heard heavier versions of this symphony um, and that I really didn't take to but this one is taken lightly and satisfyingly I rather enjoyed this um, either the violins or my ears have adjusted by the repeat of the exposition at the three-minute mark. They don't really sound very trebly anymore. They're warmer. Um, at about the five minutes and 22 seconds mark, the development starts with a lot of string figuration breaking up the first theme. At six minutes and 20 seconds, Shai makes the melody dramatic by clipping the ending of the phrases, a very interesting technique. Um, at seven minutes and 10 seconds, the recapitulation starts. Um, if you listen to the accompaniment, the rapid repeated notes and the winds are astoundingly clean at this speed. Because you hear a lot of um, the winds doing these really rapid repeated notes. Like, doo -doo 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 and they're just even and clean. And it was really amazing. Um, a, a great ensemble here. Uh, big and quickly taken ending. Second movement, this is the first of the revised movements. Um, Andante con moto. This is... um. It invokes um, a religious procession that the composer saw when he was in Naples. So if you've ever been to one of those, they're usually um, carrying a shrine around um, the city. And uh, this is usually taken 
slowly, almost like it's a funeral, <laughs> but uh, it's not. It's a festival. And we can hear the trudging feet in the walking bass under a hymn-like melody. This is also fairly quickly taken, as I think it should be. I, I was really interested to hear this um, this movement. I think a lot of um, conductors take this uh, movement too slowly because uh, it's not it's a happy occasion really uh these pilgrims are carrying their religious shrine through naples with some lift in their steps in this um performance shai favors the conmoto instruction over the andante instruction in the uh in the opening you know sort of title there most conductors take this at a more of a trudge and risk losing forward momentum no chance of that happening here and indeed it didn't Third movement, menuetto con moto grazioso. So I guess that means with a kind of gracious motion to it. It's a minuet and trio in the revision. Um, this flows nicely at about the same tempo as the previous movement. Uh, no worries, it's all beautifully shaped and really moves along. Uh, Shai gives this work a lot of energy. And this is actually characteristic of his um, conducting in general. I remember his... his um, I've got his uh, Beethoven and Brahms symphonies recordings. They're both box sets. And those are all, all nine of the Beethoven, the four of the Brahms, are all taken at rather fast speeds with all the detail nevertheless registering. He tends to like that real, really swift tempo. I think he likes to keep the, uh, the orchestral players on their toes. And I think he gets energy that way. Uh, this is a pretty long movement for this classical form at uh, 7 minutes and 27 seconds. Uh, classical form meaning the menuet and trio form, which we heard a lot in Mozart and Haydn, much earlier music. The trio section features a beautifully blended hunting call from the horns, which you can hear from the four-minute mark. Um, back to the flowing strings of the opening minuet theme at around 5 minutes and 20 seconds. The repeat of the minuet takes the repeat of all individual sections. Very unusual um, for this, this um, form. And I think that's why this movement is so long. Okay, fourth movement, saltarello, allegro di molto. Um, a saltarello is a Roman dance. And dance figurations from the Roman saltarello and Neapolitan tarantella which we which we exploded I think two weeks ago um, not this particular same tarantella but that rhythm uh, are yeah. what kind of keep this particular work moving along uh, being that both are highly energetic dances the, the story of the tarantella which I think translates as tarantula if you were bitten by this kind of um, spider <laughs> it was um, said that you had to do this really vigorous dance to get the poison out of your body because it would make your heart beat faster um, that's where, where this came from uh, really though I, that, that's look uh, that's what it says on Wikipedia and what I've actually heard but I can't even imagine how many people were being bitten by uh, spiders that uh, this dance <laughs> form came about that's what I want to know anyway being the both are highly energetic dances, which you expect an even more vigorous tempo than the fleeter than usual ones we've heard in the first three movements. And as you'd guess, we get it, but only slightly. Still, it's amazing what clarity of line Shai manages to pull out of the orchestra at this speed. The saltarello and tarantella rhythms are different, but here they're rather juxtaposed in the various themes. You can pull them both out pretty easily. Uh, the more swirling theme in the strings is the tarantella, and the more marked rhythm is the saltarello. You hear it at the beginning. The saltarello starts the piece. Uh, impressively clear playing throughout again, despite the fast tempo. Very impressive. So 
I have to say, though, my favorite version of this work, and probably partly because it's the original version, um, remains Claudio Abado's with the London Symphony Orchestra uh, on Deutsche Grammophon, recorded way back in 1984. Um, I was in college at the time and heard it later. I didn't hear it when I was in college. But this uh, this one's just stuck with me as so much music from the nine that I heard in the 90s and 2000s has. Um, his... Um, yeah, Abado's light touch with the orchestra wins me over. But Shai's here is of a different version and gets the right feel, and he also has a light touch. Uh, tempos are fleeter than usual, but that made it interesting for me. Um, so this is really enjoyable. Maybe it's my uh, second favorite version. All right. And that's really the highlight of this um, album. The rest are kind of smaller pieces. The fifth track is uh, by Schubert, Franz Schubert. Overture in the Italian style in D, um, D590 in his catalog. This is an homage to Rossini's opera Tancredi, and Schubert takes the melody from the famous Act One aria Di Tanti Palpiti and applies a slightly rhythmic modification. Uh, this piece starts with a dramatic introduction, slowly taken, like a lot of Mozart's later symphony openings, or like Don Giovanni opens too. Um, this one flows slowly as if surfing on a cloud, and it's a real respite after the high speed of the Mendelssohn Symphony, so it's a little bit of a break. Um, Shai etched the rhythmic profile with precision and gives the work a highly defined sense of movement. At 3 minutes and 19 seconds, we get into the main part of the overture, a more dancey, playful theme with some energy to it. This is a piece I was unfamiliar with, and Shai brings it off lightly and with some power in the bass end, with powerfully heard timpani in the low end as well. Track 6, Schubert again, Overture in the Italian Style in C, D591. All right, now, um, the famous um, Crescendo Rossiniano, which is um, Rossini Crescendo, and which is produced is very famous by different sections of the orchestra entering gradually as the orchestra crescendos. It's very exciting because you hear this big buildup as well as the increasing of sound. Um, this often happens with repeated phrases. As the volume increases, is celebrated here and makes an appearance four times, which is much more than you hear it in a Rossini piece. It was a crowd-pleasing effect back in the day and really still is. It's still pretty exciting to hear. Mm. Even though contemporary orchestras can do this in their sleep. <laughs> uh, again, this starts with a slow introduction a la Mozart and Rossini. At 2 minutes and 39 seconds, the lively main section starts. It proceeds with a dotted rhythm, a very appealing melody. A new theme is heard at 3 minutes and 38 seconds, which is more flowing and smooth. We hear the first Rossini crescendo starting at the 4 minute mark, so you can check that out there's another starting at the four minute 20 second mark um i i felt it's actually better to hear rossini do it since he's the inventor and he has a good sense of timing with it schubert is really just celebrating it here so we hear it a little i think too often but he's really excited by it apparently uh, we're back to the dotted rhythm theme at five minutes and 20 seconds there's another crescendo leading to the flowing second theme and a nice move to a minor key at five minutes and 50 seconds at six minutes, we get another Rossini crescendo. <laughs> I don't think Rossini ever had this many of them in his own overtures, <laughs> but obviously Schubert is relishing this effect. He repeats it at six minutes and 25 seconds, and Shai gives this an exciting ending as the orchestra races to the final cadence. 
Okay, the last three tracks are all overtures from early Mozart operas. The first one is from uh, Mitridate Re di Ponto, Kirschel 87, K87. Mozart was 14 when he wrote this. <laughs> wow. Mozart wrote, he wrote his, uh, he wrote his first, he wrote an opera when he was 14 while I was just trying to get my uh, first girlfriend. <laughs> so, <laughs> go figure. And this piece is effectively a miniature, this overture is effectively a miniature symphony in three movements. You know, Robert Greenberg, by the way, once uh, said that uh, we should count Mozart years the same way we count dog years. So like seven human, well, seven Mozart years would be like one human year. <laughs> so that when Mozart is, uh, no, it's the, the opposite. Like when Mozart is 14, he's like the equivalent of uh like a 30-year-old or 40-year-old uh, normal person, <laughs> <laughs> which I think might work or something. I haven't done the math correctly, but someone else figured that out. Okay, this work is only uh, 5 minutes and 30, 53 seconds, and yet it has three sections. We get a brief introduction, then a racing theme in the strings, and a contrasting one at 25 seconds. The mood darkens in the minor at about 53 seconds. There's a lot of um, content in this first minute of music and we head to a spirited cadence at the two minute mark then what Chai would consider the slow second movement starts he wrote that note that I read it's a theme with a nice lift to it produced by a dotted rhythm landing on an accented note it, it even gets a trio type middle section around two minutes and 50 seconds and the heavier theme repeats at around the three minute mark at four minutes and 20 seconds the third movement in quotation marks starts it's spirited as finales generally are with mozartian elegance abounding the theme moves upwards while crescendoing as a new english word adding to the excitement and ends with some elegant pianissimo building to a louder final cadence this is a, like almost a six minute movement but it's like a three movement symphony and even those little sections have loads of emotional and detail in them it's really amazing 14 years old. <laughs> we should be grateful, shouldn't we? I mean, I am. Anyway, next is uh, track eight, Mozart Ascanio in Alba, um, K111. Um, this is a classical festive theatrical piece, and it's rather brief at three minutes and 37 seconds, full of high spirits of the Nozze di Figaro overture type, a very famous overture. But much simpler than that, obviously. Um, Shai has just the right feel for Mozart, and here it, uh, his lightness and fleetness register perfectly. And the last track is uh, the overture from Lucio Silla, K135. This is another miniature symphony, really, and the most remarkable overture of the three, uh, according to Shai, because he hears a premonition of Don Giovanni, which is 15 years in the future, in the darkness that comes in at bar 33, when there's a series of 10 pitches in the low strings. It offers a real glimpse of the darker world of Mozart's tragedy. Um, it begins with a stop-and-start theme that has a lot of energy and is propelled joyfully forward by Shai's brisk pace. At 43 seconds, you can hear the darkening of the theme. Um, the opening repeats. We get a cadence at 3 minutes and 22 seconds. Then the, quote, second movement begins at around 3 minutes and 22 seconds. It's slow and flowing. At 4 minutes and 50 seconds, we get a darkening of the 
sending bass notes. I think this might be the part that um, actually uh, that Shai is talking about. I couldn't find a score of this online. I could have just counted the bars. But anyway, it is dramatic and rather foreboding. But this is erased by the flowing melody as it reappears at 5 minutes and 25 seconds. It's like a magic trick. You're in the dark woods, and then suddenly this weird harmonic turn, and wow, you're in the sunlight again. Mozart really had a real sleight of hand with this sort of with the way he wrote music really is um special um but it, you know this theme is probably a bit more cautious now after being lost in the woods at six minutes and 19 seconds we get the third section or the third movement of this overture symphony which features a vast a fast theme with a heavy accent on the downbeat the uh overture comes to a rather quick conclusion shai again excellently keeps the music moving at an energetic pace. The energy he manages to inject into the into this familiar music is vivifying. Um, is that a word? Vivifying? <laughs> I might have invented it from Italian. I'm not sure. Adjectives Vivere, to live. It's making me live. Okay? I don't know. That's what it means. Anyway. Shai is one of the world's great contemporary conductors. He's really at the near at the top of the heap with a few others. And his interpretations are always going to provoke interest. And he's in top form these days. And whatever you think of the Mendelssohn revision he's chosen here, he makes an excellent case for it. The Mendelssohn is the highlight of the recording. The rest of the work's excellently performed, but less familiar. And that's a good thing, I think. We should always be getting familiar with um, music that's unfamiliar to us. They're all enjoyable listens, and the Mozart especially will lift the spirits. It was a good idea to close the program with three of his overtures. I'd say a recommended listen. Yeah, I enjoyed all the performances here, the little Italian flair common theme with the spirited motion. And of course, yeah, the Mendelssohn is the star attraction. Yeah. And yeah, I enjoyed the all the things you mentioned and especially the uh, major minor sort of changes in places mm. that we don't really expect them. Uh, I noted right. those in my notes. The only thing about this recording, I'm not so sure about the sound quality. Um, I found it was very warm and rich sounding, but yeah. I wasn't getting all the detail I wanted out of hearing the individual parts. Okay. So it sounded kind of slightly veiled or lacking in clarity. I don't know. You know, sometimes you listen to these things and they sound to you one way one night and mm. a different way the next night. Uh, that was, I happened to listen to this one on my main big system. And I just felt like it was rich, but not detailed. I was wondering about, like I had mentioned, I thought the uh, the strings were really trebly when they right. first enter with the theme. Da -da -na -da -da -na -da -da. Yeah. And uh, I think that disappeared, but I'm wondering if I just got used to that. Yeah, you never know. Sound. It can be you the know. humidity, the time of day, what you had for mm. dinner. Uh, that was just my impression on the one a big listen I had of it. But uh, overall, the performances and the program is uh, very interesting and uh, well worth focusing on while you listen to it. Yeah, I liked the idea, too, of just these Italian-inspired yeah. works. They're not actually Italian works. And the Mendelssohn, I think everybody knows the the Italian symphony by Mendelssohn. It's my favorite of the, uh, how many did he write? F five, six, five. He wrote five. And uh, it's my favorite of those five. The Scottish is also good, but this one's it's just light and dancey, mm. and I just like it a lot. Okay, now part of the reason that I wanted to include that rather familiar um, 
you know that um, album of very familiar music in is because the next one has no familiar music on it and it's all contemporary mm. and you never know what you're going to get <laughs> when you when you do this um the uh, album i'm talking about here is called transfiguration which is a pretty imposing title i mean uh certainly john coltrane tried to transfigure mm. us in his later years right for sure yeah i was having a interesting conversation with uh with someone about um those those late uh coltrane recordings like ascension mm-hmm. and um it seems to me that music like this still isn't very familiar like a lot of people still just don't listen to that album and uh, because yeah. it's hard mm-hmm. but the thing is i think with music if you listen to it over and over and over again it just becomes familiar sure right um we hear a lot of really harsh music in movies from the 60s the 50s a lot of that um serialism and it becomes palatable to us because we just get used to it in these dramatic hearing it in these dramatic situations so it seems to me that if like people were to start listening or you know playing fragments of or talking about like say the coltrane's ascension album more um it would just be part of our vocabulary it wouldn't be a hard listen you know you just you would just absorb it as part start of the culture it at preschools everywhere yeah, I think so too. <laughs> why not? Yeah. I don't know why I got into that. Only because of the title here, Transfiguration. Mm. But this is not a difficult listen at all. In fact, it's very pleasant. I really um, like this the, one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a big surprise, really. Mm. Um, I didn't know what, what, what I was going to get. Because, um, of course, these are all contemporary composers. Um, the, uh, the artists are Stéphane Tetro on cello. And Valérie Milo on a harp. These uh, two musicians are both from Quebec, from uh, mm. in Canada. As it as are all the composers on the album, except for Sansons and uh, the last one, which I'll talk about in a minute. And uh, this is on the Atma Classics label, uh, which is a Canadian label based in Montreal, Quebec. So this is a French Canadian, an album of contemporary French Canadian. Music. By the way, I shouldn't say the Atma Classical label. It's the Atma Classique label because they're based in Montreal and we're going to speak French. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they'll force you. Yeah. But they'll speak their own special brand of French, which I find hard to understand. <laughs> anyway. anyway, the booklet claims that the album features music by five renowned composers. Yeah, they might be renowned in Montreal. I've never heard of any mm. of them. And uh, only Marjan Mozetic has a Wikipedia page. The other ones don't. Uh, Francois Vallière has one in French. Um, not that Wikipedia is the most reliable source anyway. But, I mean, if you're going to look up Mozart on Wikipedia, you're going to find him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's okay, though. I'm up for a little self-promotion, um, you know, from these composers. That's cool. They're renowned. I'll take their word for it. And promotion of one's contemporaries is kind of important anyway. Okay, all the composers are French-Canadian, except for um, Gentle Giant, um, who are no longer in existence. They were a British um, uh, progressive rock band from the 1970s, and uh, we hear a famous track by them called Cogs and Cogs. Also, we hear okay. saint uh Le Signe, the Swan, uh, so of course he was French too, and he's also long dead. Anyway, let's start talking about this music. The first, um, I wonder how you'd say this name. Alex, the first um, composer is Alexandre 
Grog? I don't know. Grog? Grog? From New York. Grog. Grog. (laughs) (laughs) New Yorkers would just say grog. Grog. You know? I born in 1979, so he's a generation after us. Mm. This is his Trois Variations sur la Folia. Now, we've heard uh, la Folia, um, I I think just last week we heard a a version of this. Here, though, um, this uh, work is, um, I guess you could call it a jazz influence work for the most part. The third movement, for sure. Yeah, Yeah, the third movement is, yeah. Um, the first movement, though, is just the aria. It um, plays the folia chords just straight through. So if you're wondering what they are and what they sound like, you'll get a clear um, idea of it from listening to track one. Yeah, la folia, as we mentioned, I think, last week, is a Baroque piece, Baroque era piece. Actually, it started even before the Baroque era. With a, chords, with a chord succession, they say. I wouldn't call it a progression. Uh, that caught on with musicians of the time, and apparently today people still like it because it gets um, a lot of outings. Um, the first movement is an aria, mysterious opening on the harp, with the cello playing mournful notes and uh, sul ponticello tremolos. That's when the bow is played on the, the bridge of the cello, and it makes kind of a more ghostly sort of sound. It doesn't have that full throaty sound there. Um, this is a minute and 12 seconds, this movement, and it introduces the folia theme and chords. So you can get a clear idea of what they sound like by listening to this music. This, this movement. The second movement, promenade, which kind of means like a walk. Um, um, but it actually, this movement dances a bit more. We can make out the chords easily in the harps part again. So this is the famous folia chords. Uh, the cello accompanies with pizzicati and then takes over the melody with pizzicati. He never kind of comes out of that. There's also a knocking sound, which sounds like the cellist knocking on the instrument's wooden body. Uh, the harp is in uh, heavenly mode throughout this is the sound you're going to hear when you die and go to heaven apparently and uh the third movement is titled amad and uh this features uh also bernard rich on the drums so there's a third musician here the amad uh, title stands for jazz pianist amad jamal and suddenly we're in a jazz idiom here there are drums played with brushes most of this work's interest appears in this movement which is the same length as the first two combined Three minutes and 25 seconds, so the whole work is very short. It's about six minutes long in total. The harp plays staccato chords and the cello pizzicati under it. The cellist then goes for staccato bowing of the melody along with the harp. Uh, the jazzy feel is light, sort of like Amajabal's recent work, which influenced it. Um, it's light and cheerful, captures the overall jazz feel well. Okay, The cello... At a minute and 37 seconds, plays a bowed melody that at first sounded like a high brass instrument, um, so much that I expect to hear that timbre because of the jazziness of the piece. Um, I actually mistook it momentarily for another, you know, for a brass instrument. After this, we're back to the quick chords. The cello plays a staccato bowed walking bass line while the harp takes the melody. Um, enjoyable movement and peace, and we're off. This sounded great. I was like pretty impressed. Yeah, that was fun. Mm. Okay, so fourth track, François Vallière, double monologue, divertissement sanitaire. That's a funny title for cello and harp. The subtitle translates as sanitary entertainment and refers to the pieces being composed at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think he's trying to, um, 
uh, the composer Valier is trying to entertain himself while he's locked mm. up in his house. Um, the notes say, the booklet notes say, this is an evocation of two talkative individuals who occupy the same room but refuse to listen to each other. Um, maybe if they're Canadians, because it sounded very polite <laughs> to me. I mean, New Yorkers wouldn't sound like this, I can tell you that. Uh, the author says, we hear a pastiche of contemporary society's addiction to social media. Uh, the music features looping figures that act like repelling magnets for the two instruments. Okay, they never come together, the two instruments, mm -hmm. but they do sort of support each other well. And I think this would probably be the sound of uh, Canadians being addicted to social media. They're much more polite. <laughs> okay. This is a really pretty sounding piece, so don't let that description um, put you off. It starts with a bowed cello chord drawn out of the harp plays the harmonics. This intro goes on for about a minute, and then a cello melody begins just before the one-minute mark. The cello's melody is soft and appealing, and the harp plays accompanying chords. The harp starts making itself known at about a minute and 43 seconds, and we start hearing looping figures in both instruments afterwards. And I guess you could interpret those looping figures, like the, the, the material tends to repeat, like an ostinato, as though like the mind's looping when it's using... Um, social media, you, know, you kind of get fixated on this thing and just kind of can't get out of that loop. Um, pretty clever, if that's in fact what's happening. I'm just interpreting. Um, the two instruments continue to play their own material. The harp, mostly arpeggiated figures, while the cello gets into a per perpetual motion type eighth note figures. Given the theme, it's surprising that this work isn't discordant at all. That's what I was expecting when mm. I read the uh, the notes, but it's not. It's actually quite pleasant on the ear. Easy on the ear, let's say. The two instruments may not be listening to each other, but the two players certainly are. It's actually an attractive work. And suddenly on a gruff chord played by both instruments. All right, track five, Marjan Mozatik, born in 1948. So he's a generation before us. This is called Sentiment Transfiguré. Inspired by this is um inspired by the starting point of the situation in Puccini's Madame Butterfly, uh, where a 15-year-old Japanese girl, full of dreams, meets an American Navy orchestra looking for a convenient marriage. I've never really worked that out why uh, he decides to marry her. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he just wants a he just wants to get it on, and then he gets his American wife at the end, and the opera ends tragically. Anyway, this, but we get to hear a lot of amazing melodies while it's all happening. Anyway, the opening melody is lifted directly from Puccini's opera and transformed throughout the work. Um, I was trying to identify what it was, and I couldn't really tell. I think it might be the orchestral interlude while uh, Madame Butterfly is waiting for... Um, uh, Pinkerton's boat in the second act. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think, but I couldn't really tell. Anyway, the cello starts this with, uh, no, it's not from a song, I don't think. Anyway, the cello starts this with no vibrato at all, with harp chords accompanying. It sounds Puccinian and is, and is of course, very lovely as Puccini. Puccini had a magic to him melodically as well. At a minute and 30 seconds, vibrato enters the cello's theme, and the harp starts playing arpeggios. I think this is based on the instrumental interlude when Butterfly is waiting for Pinkerton to come ashore, as I mentioned. Um, at 2 minutes and 40 seconds, the material takes a darker turn, then goes back to its lyrical profile at 2 minutes and 50 seconds or so. And at 3 minutes and 20 seconds, all of the material speeds up, 
with shorter note values. The transfiguration becomes more lush as we go on, with full harp arpeggios and long bowed phrases from the cello. There's a pause at about the 4 minute and 40 second mark, and we're back to quieter material. From here, the material var varies from quick, agitated playing to soft, romantic, beautiful sounds, with the figuration of the two instruments constantly varying. It ends rather mysteriously on an unresolved note. So very Puccinian. Yeah, lush and pretty, this one. Yeah, very pretty. And uh, tracks 6 through 10, Caroline Lizotte. This is called Close for Couloir. Opus 48. Inspired by a trip the composer took to Scotland. So this has like kind of a Scottish theme. Um, mm. The first movement is called Cromlech. Ring o Brodgar. I don't know how to pronounce Scottish words, folks. So you're just going to have to deal with me. <laughs> okay. It says here that cork is used to depict these stone circles. And uh, I'm not really sure what that sounds like. I guess I'd have to see this performed. We first hear a long, drawn-out bass note from the cello and the harp being plucked with a dull, thudding sound in its bass end. There's rhythmic knocking at 48 seconds. That's possibly the cork. Um, an atmospheric movement. Uh, this is an atmospheric movement relying on its timbres more for meaning than any melodies. Um, at the end, we get quick wandering lines from the cello and harp, with the cello finally ending in a Scottish folk song-like dance melody and rhythm, which proves to be the opening of the uh, second movement called Clans, Battle O'Harlaw, in uh, parentheses. It says here, loose horsehair is used to depict wind blowing over bloodstained dunes, but I couldn't make this out. Hmm. Anyway, it's a folk dance. Um, it connects into, okay, from the previous movement, connects into this one. Um, the Scottish the Scottish is strong in this movement, and it's beautifully arranged, even magical at times, as at the one-minute mark when the cello is playing melodically in its high end. This movement ends on a growling chord low in the cello. Very satisfying sonically, I thought. Third movement, The Sodger and the Queen, Edinburgh Castle. This is a very faint, high cello harmonics start the movement. Very atmospheric opening, quietly played in both instruments. They both sound almost faded in their tones, the harp taking on the sound of a much smaller ancient harp here. Um, the tones of the two instruments fill out as the movement goes on. Uh, by 3 minutes and 30 seconds, we're hearing them both at full timbre. Back to quieter material at four minutes, and the movement fades further to the ending chord. There's a long pause after this ends, and we get to the Gargoyle Song, and uh, Melrose Abbey is the inspiration for this. This starts with the cello plucking its strings and muting them, so that we just hear a percussive attack. The harp plays arpeggiated figures downwards. There's a cool buzzing from the cello as it bows its material at the end of the harp's phrases, uh, sort of like a Jew's harp sound. What is a Jew's harp? What's the official name for that instrument? I probably shouldn't even be saying that. Uh, official name? I don't know. Yeah, yeah there is one. Yeah, the cello has that weird buzzing sound. I think there's some kind of metal placed on the string or something. The cello stays in its low end as the harp plucks chords. Uh, this is another work whose main interest is in the timbre, and it connects to the last movement, um, which is called Man to Man, The World Shall Brothers Be for Ah That, which is an evocation of a man's a man for that, 
for Ah That, for All That, a song by Robert Burns. Robert Burns, the famous Scottish songwriter and poet who gave us Old Lang Syne, among other um, great uh, poems and songs like My Heart's in the Highlands. There's a fantastic Arvo Pertum uh, arrangement of that song, My Heart's in the Highlands, that you must hear if you don't know it. So look that up. Anyway, here, Lisotte uses a revised meter in what she calls trinary form, um, giving it a floating quality that the notes say make the peace drift from the feudal age to our time, evoking peace after war. Yeah, maybe. It's a straightforward <laughs> song melody in the cello with the harp providing chord figuration. Very pretty, as one would expect from a Robert Burns song. And this entire work is just enjoyable altogether. All right, we're back to, uh, on track 11, we're back to Alexandre Grog, or Grog. <laughs> uh, this is kind of interesting. Um, the title is Don Signe L'Autre. Uh, Signe is a swan, so it means like uh, from one swan to the next, or swan to swan. And um, it draws on musical swans from the past, um, starting with Orlando Gibbons' The Silver Swan. We hear a bit of uh, Jean Sibelius' Swan of Tornela. And Samuel Barber's Unsigne, Unsigne from his Melodies Passagère, Opus 27. And at the end, we get Camille Saint-Saëns' Le Signe, The Swan, from Carnaval des Animaux. Um, anyone notice something missing here? Where's Swan Lake? Yeah. The most famous swan in classical music history. Well, I guess any of those themes weren't going to fit into this piece. By the way, uh, if you're a literary type, as I am, I love this kind of thing. Uh, the title of the work in French, Don't Signe L'Autre, echoes the title of Céline's novel, Don Château L'Autre, from one castle to the next. So, a little literary reference there for those of you um, who are into the humanities, as I am. It goes with Scotland as well. I guess it does. We start here in the stately Renaissance world of Gibbons with the harp playing chords and the cello, a short-phrased non-legato melody. The rhythmic profile changes quite a bit in the first two minutes. At a minute and five seconds, there's a change of tempo and thematic material, uh, perhaps a change of character. Uh, th didn't sound like the uh, Gibbons piece. And then just before two minutes, there's another change. Uh, perhaps this is all just transitional material. At 2 minutes and 28 seconds, we get a new, more legato mel melody. This is the uh, the uh, swan's voice in Swan of Tornella by Sibelius. This is the famous English horn theme. The cello gets to show off its beauty of tone here because it, it gets these, just these long, gorgeous melodies to play. The harp remains water-like arpeggios. And at 4 minutes and 42 seconds, we morph into a more into more melody with the harp in the lead while the cello plays an ostinato bass line. Um, there's another transition at about the six minute mark and then finally at six minutes and 27 seconds, we start hearing Barber's Unsigne and we hear this to the end. Uh, the work continues into the next track after a cadence. Now, track 12 is a faithful um, interpretation of Saint-Saëns' uh, The Swan for cello and harp. Usually it's for cello and piano. Now, in the notes, it said that Grog's piece included Saint-Saëns' Le Signe in it, but I couldn't make that out, unless mm. this is it, you know, here. I guess it is. But this piece is kind of special here because it was the first piece that Tetro and Milo, the two soloists, ever played together. 
and it made them a team. So it's a little uh, nostalgic for them as well. Um, it's joined to the previous piece without a pause and played slowly and with great beauty by the cellist. Very atmospheric, and the harpist too, really. Very atmospheric in this arrangement for harp accompaniment. Track 13, Kelly Marie Murphy. Not a very French-Canadian-sounding name. Uh, this is, she was born in 1964, so a year before me. Si veriash a la rana, which means, if you could see the frog. It's the title of a Jewish folk song whose refrain is simply, Beni seni severim. I didn't say that right, but it means, I love you. I guess I should memorize that, huh? Just in case I'm yeah. wandering through the <laughs> Middle East. That's the message of the piece. The inspiration for this piece was a Ladino, with a D, L-A-D-I-N-O, nursery rhyme of the same title that came from the Turkey and Balkans region. This arrangement is derived from Murphy's Concerto for Cello, Harp, and Orchestra. That piece is called En el Escuro es Todo Uno, In the Darkness, All is One. This piece starts very quietly with a harp arpeggio. Then the cello comes in with a theme, and there's a crescendo. The cello's melody at around the 45-second mark conjures a wailing melody that sounds Middle Eastern, or perhaps like something from Turkey or the Balkans. This transforms into a more rhythmic, whirling dance rhythm at two minutes. That'll put you in mind of the Middle East. There's percussion in this work, whooshing sounds, and a light tambourine-like instrument, as well as knocking on wood. I don't know who's doing this. Um, Bernard Riche isn't credited on it, um, and the other two... the other two musicians sound uh, very busy so the uh, percussionist here is uncredited the work itself grows pretty passionate and vertiginous up to the end it just builds in energy okay track 14 uh gentle giant progressive rock british rock band from the 1970s they uh consisted of the the song Cogs and Cogs is written by Derek Schulman, Kerry Miniar, and Raymond Schulman of the band. And uh, the arrangement here is by Francois Vallier, whose piece we heard earlier in this um, album. Uh, Bernard Riche returns on drums and sounds very much like a rock drummer here. He's just a man of many talents. He was a jazz drummer on track three, and here he's a rock drummer. Um... Cogs on Cogs is a track on uh, Gentle Giant's 1974 album, The Power and the Glory, so you can look that up on your streaming service. Uh, this um, is included because, according to the notes, the result of the music we've heard is that all its elements can transfigure into one symbiotic entity, consummating into a unified outcome. So, like progressive rock, this album has a message, all is one. The drums on this completely change the feel of the album, it feels like now we're hearing a rock album. The drums and harp both play repeating patterns. We can hear the cello bowing within all this, another repeating pattern. So these are the cogs and cogs. It's an impressive recreation of the original recording, except with more clarity, um, just because there's a lot less kind of happening in the in this acoustic space, I guess. The title pretty much sums this work up. It's all ostinato patterns changing in the instruments from time to time. The ensemble gets an energetic feel into this. It's a fun performance, and it ends the album on a discord, but nevertheless on a good-feeling note. So there it is, an album of very likable contemporary works from Quebec, uh, where we rarely hear from. Uh, thankfully, the Atma Classique label is changing that. Um, there's nothing not to like here. The two soloists sound fantastic together, breathing as one in their phrasing, anticipating each other's attack exceptionally well. I really didn't know what to expect from this. 
and as a result, it went way beyond my expectations. Highly listenable, very pleasant. Um, yeah, I would absolutely hear this. Fill your life with some new contemporary music from Quebec. Yeah, I found this really engaging. It's probably going to take quite a few listens to get everything, you know, in my mind that's going on in here. There's a, there's a lot of interesting things. Mm. I like the sparse instrumentation that makes it easy to listen to and pick out the parts. And the recording is really clear and also rich sounding. Yeah, way to go, Atma Classique. Yeah, the pieces are modern, but very accessible. It's pretty easy listening, uh, melodic, rich harmonies. And there's a lot of variety in the composition types. And what I liked also is the harp and cello take on a lot of unique instrumental roles. So you get, for example, walking bass in the cello. Yeah. Some guitar-like strumming things uh, in the harp, more piano-like things too, rather than just the angelic kind of uh, arpeggios that you, you know, often hear the harp relegated to. So they show mm -hmm. a lot of flexibility and overall very enjoyable and varied program. Uh, so I thought this was an outstanding sort of uh, representation of contemporary music that I think almost anyone would enjoy. Yeah, let's give the uh, sound engineers some credit here. This is a uh, recording producer and sound engineer Carl Talbot of Musicom Productions Incorporated. Uh, also, sound engineer and music editor Philippe Bouvret, also for the same company, Musicom Productions Incorporated, and assistant sound engineer Alexis Tremblay. So they had three uh, engineers working on this. Mm. I guess that's. I guess that helps. Usually yeah. you only get Helped one. Here. So, yeah. so there you great. go. You guys sound great. Yeah, really good work on the recording as well. All right. And there we go. There you have it. Now we're yeah. on to the, uh, the organ, the jazz organ coming up here. Yeah, we're right? riding the wave of the organ renaissance of jazz. It just seems to yeah. be so many recordings coming out. And, uh, well, certainly since we've started this podcast... There's been, uh, you know, they're popping up all the time, so much so that tonight we're going to revisit two musicians that we've heard before on the yeah. podcast, and we're going to get one that's come out of hibernation <laughs> for mm. the first time in a long time. Maybe you thought, you know, organ is the happening thing, and so it's time to get back in the mix here. Yeah. And so we're going to start with that because uh, this is something a lot of people have been waiting for. And, uh, well, the anticipation was built up, as is always done on Blue Note, with their promotion and teasing, sort of, uh, I think there were a couple tracks available uh, mm. of this early. But we're talking about Mr. Ronnie Foster. Yeah. Originally from Buffalo, New York. We've got some upstate uh, New York connections uh, going on in the program tonight. Yeah. And on his uh, new release, Reboot appropriate title the first release in 36 years from uh, ronnie foster that's <laughs> a long time <laughs> yeah but he's an, a name that uh, stuck around with a lot of people he had five kind of well-known blue note albums in the early 70s he played on hit albums by stevie wonder george benson and others and uh, so you know we haven't heard him for a long time 36 years it's also the yeah. 50th anniversary of his uh, 72, 1972, uh, Two-Headed Freep album, uh, which is also being reissued this year. Oh, cool. Yeah. Because I heard that earlier. And also, I guess uh, this album is kind of noteworthy. The uh, tune he had, Mystic Brew, was yeah. sampled uh, for, uh, let's see, this uh, Electric Relaxation 
tune from 1994, A Tribe Called Quest. So I guess yeah. a, a new generation got to... Uh, and they're a hip-hop uh, duo or trio or, or right. crew, let's say. We should mention Foster is uh, 72 years old, by the way. Right. And I get the uh, impression, you know, since we've listened to a lot of um, organ uh, this past yeah. year, I, I call him sort of a conjurer. He sort of um, pulls out uh, a lot of... Uh, kind of feeling from the organ rather than, you know, dazzling with kind of pyrotechnics and things. And so I got a lot of emotional vibes and different kind of feelings from this recording. Uh, so mm. Ronnie Foster is here. Uh, he doesn't play a Hammond B3. He's got an XK5, which I found has a really nice, dark and rich tone that comes through on this recording a lot. And he's also going to treat us to some piano on here. More about that later. He's got his son, uh, Chris Foster, on drums on four tracks here, uh, shouting some vocals on background vocals on one track too. Uh, the other tracks have uh, Jimmy Branley on drums. Fine guitar playing by Michael O'Neill, uh, who has quite a resume too. You can look him up. Luis Conte on timbales and shaker. Lenny Castro on conga. Uh, Jerry Lopez guests on guitar on track six for something quite surprising we'll get to that too and josh Connolly shouts it out on uh, the one track background too and all tunes except for one that will be obvious as we go through our foster originals so we start out the program with the title track reboot gets a drum intro to a funky syncopated organ bass and chord kind of thing going on the bluesy main melody is handled in unison by guitar and organ there's a contrasting uplifting section and then another kind of different sounding bridge in this tune, a kind of unique structure. The drum beat is tight and rocky with nice changing subdivided grooves from Chris Foster here. Uh, O'Neill is up for a guitar solo first, starting relaxed, with some nice uh, biting bluesy licks. And then Foster has a great throbbing bass line going on uh, down underneath there. Uh, he comes up next on organ Leaves a lot of tasty space, but gets uh, impressive running lines, tight locking, punchy chords in his solo. O'Neill has a nice scratch rhythm going on on the chords behind the organ. On the bridge section after the organ solo, there's some cool organ swells uh, that fill out the sound. And then they take it through the funky melody to close it out. So it's, yeah, a nice kind of intro. I uh, get a nice groove feeling going. The second track is Sultry Song two so a little organ bass and guitar riff intro and then into an easy r&b groove feel the nice clicky drum beat from uh, brandley o'neill plays the relaxed melody over foster's locked in chords there's some light conga from castro to add extra rhythm it's got that kind of uh, i'm chilling outside with a cold drink feel to it <laughs> you know like you can't be bothered with uh anyone else's problems there's a bridge section with more organ swells and the final chords are left to float over some light cymbal fills before the groove kicks back in for the guitar solo o'neill's more jazzy here on his uh, solo fluid phrasing and runs foster takes over with a two-handed entrance uh, kind of pops right in there but then he solos gracefully i love the warm thick tone of his organ uh, he works into cool rhythmic figures uh, that he ascends on chromatically and into more playful phrases. Once more around that melody to chill it out again, and they take it out with the opening riff section that fades away. 
Yeah, but before you say it, we should all try for sultry song too. We should all try to attain the state that this song yeah. uh, puts us in, especially you, now. You need <laughs> like a tropical shirt, yeah, a drink with you know a fruit slice on top and some shades, and <laughs> you'll be all set to get that mood. You just listen to it; you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay, track three, swinging, and as titled, it's a swinging tune. It's in twelve bar blues form with a cool little rising figure in the unison guitar and organ melody. They go around twice for good measure, so you get that in your head. Nice walking bass, organ bass there. O'Neill's up first for a guitar solo. Some nice percussive blues licks and chords. Fosser's next uh, on organ. Some harmonic fun around the blues chord sequence there. Chasing phrases he ties together uh, before getting more bluesy and rhythmic uh, below a nice high-held chord, you know, where they do that mm. kind of cross-hand thing, maybe holding it up there. Back through the blues melody twice again and a cool percussive outro with some final bluesy guitar licks and swollen organ chords. Very tasty. Uh, get your blues bite fix on mm. this one. Track four, Jay's Dream. It's a solo organ for this whole tune. Uh, a very rich intro, deep bass, and a nice swell into a rubato ballad melody. Foster lets some more brightness in on top in a spot before flowing through the melody uh, as you get surrounded by the big fluffy organ tone blanket. You <laughs> just imagine mm. someone coming up with a, a huge fuzzy blanket on this one with that all that tone wrapping up uh, around you. Uh, Foster adds some more varied tones then, uh, improvised ornaments as he goes through it. There's a nice clean break added in uh, too, right before the final kind of easy and lush ending push. So I like that little pause. It sort of just gives you a little reset there. But uh, you really soak up that organ tone uh, here. Now we get to the uh, non-Foster tune, non-composed tune, and of course it's by Stevie Wonder, uh, Isn't She Lovely? And interestingly, Pat Bianchi, who we're going to hear later in the yeah. program, we heard last year do this tune on his all Stevie Wonder release uh, right. back in episode 39. Uh, I like what Foster does with the arrangement here, though. He has a, a lot of fun with you know the beginning of that famous uh, lead-in phrase. Uh, he teases a couple times with it, and he goes to this really dark kind of uh, chord that contrasts with it. Uh, hmm. So he does that twice. Then you're off on the melody and you get that thick pulsing organ bass below. It really, you know, that low tone, it just resonates through everywhere. Great. Foster builds up to his full entrance on the uh, B section. Chris Foster, his son, with a nice little snare roll underneath. I liked that. O'Neill joins in as well, adding tasty rhythm next time around the melody. Uh, Foster extends the pickup riff idea into the start of his solo, building up higher on it. Uh, it's a fun mix of melodic lines, runs, and cool, trilly, playful figures. They have another round on the melody, uh, repeating and stretching out a sparse version of the final phrase and ending on the riff with a little extra harmonic tension. Yeah. Now, apparently, Ronnie Foster played on the uh, the original recording the original as one, well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This that's pretty amazing. Mm. He played on the songs of the Key of Life album. Right. You know, for sure. How about yeah. that? And I, I like what he does, uh, funking up this one a little bit. Uh, it's a nice mm. arrangement. Now we're going to get something completely different and rather cool. Uh, 
Carlos, uh, this is back to a, a Foster uh, original composition, but it's uh, inspired by Carlos Santana, and it's not shy in telling you all about that. <laughs> um, but the opening is something else. Uh, we get Jerry Lopez here giving a flamenco acoustic guitar opening. Uh, it ends in some percussive strums uh, from which Luis Conte enters with sharp timbales on you know this obviously Santana inspired kind of feel it's uh you know you know it right away from the infectious uh, minor melody and latin groove uh, that comes in it has a contrasting and more easy riding and major sounding bridge that you know sort of uh, makes that even stand out more o'neill puts on a thicker uh, overdriven sound to his guitar to match the mood and show some real Santana-esque notes with biting articulation, that real mean tone, uh, and some growling shredding tying it back into the bridge. Uh, Foster follows with an organ solo. He starts with shorter phrases that tie into longer ideas. He has a little kind of call and response with himself on a high line to a low line and a, a zigzag line that works kind of down the keys is going down but coming up a little bit and it kind of reminds me of what greg raleigh did uh on in the santana band on the hammond back on some of the original ones so i wonder if he did that on purpose or is just the santana sound part that's stuck in his head hmm. uh, they go back into the bridge around the tune again jamming out on a repeated sequence to give uh Brandley and uh, conga and timbales, uh, some fun time on percussion. Oh, it's very cool to have a really Latin-y feel tune on here uh, with organ again, because uh, those old Santana Latin tunes were really good. Then we get a hoot of a tune here, number seven, Hey, Good Looking Woman. And uh, here, uh, well, the drum picks up a four-bar intro with a heavy beat from Chris Foster here. We're back to the old 12-bar blues and uh, O'Neill goes round once uh, with a bluesy guitar solo. And then we're going to be treated to Ronnie Foster's vocals. Huh. He's trying to get the good-looking woman to go home with him. And I, and it has a line, I'm an old dirty man and I need a good-looking woman on my knee. Try that pickup <laughs> line. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, O'Neill fills in uh, between the phrases with tasty bluesy licks. And uh, Connolly and the younger Foster have a response backing lines uh, of the title phrase, Hey, Good Looking Woman, for another round on the 12-bar uh, blues pattern. Uh, there's a cool eight-bar bridge here, which is really nice. Uh, it breaks up the blues. It's got a unison vocalization and guitar in a kind of more minor modal feel. Uh, Foster takes off next with a bluesy organ solo. Then he comes back to the vocals for that title shout-out chorus. And then they go back through the vocalized bridge with the guitar uh, once more and a little outro with uh, O'Neill's guitar to the end. So just kind of a fun shouting blues uh, number there. Track eight is After Chicago. Uh, this one has got a rubato and soft synthy, uh, synthesizery. Oh, synthy sounds easier to say. Mm. Solo opening. Uh, a slow drum and conga groove gets the main tune started. O'Neill and Foster work the legato melody together. There's some nice harmonies there too. Uh, next, O'Neill switches to acoustic guitar uh, for a very clearly articulated solo. Great tone and rhythmic feel. Uh, I like that change up. Nice little double stops and tasty figures in that uh, acoustic part. Foster solos with rolling figures, repeated rhythmic things, uh, and 
that turns into lines with a variety of sweet Leslie effects there. Uh, once more around the easy grooving tune to finish. And we're going to end up with uh, something different again. Track 9, After Conversation with Nadia. And so Foster finishes up here with a contemplative a piano solo tune. It's pretty, sparse, it flows gently. There's some little ear-catching harmonic tensions along the way. A variety of phrasing ideas that he goes through. It sounds interestingly that he adds a little synthy sustain uh, between three and a half and four minutes, four and a half minutes here. Take a listen. Uh, there's a little extra layer there. And the final strain is interesting. It's kind of an alternating pedal tone and chords uh, that sort of let it down in a sequence uh, very gently. Uh, so a contrast to the organ program. Anyway, I found it to be a fun collection of tunes a lot of variety. We've got enough blues. We've got a full-on Latin piece and also the percussion giving a Latin sort of feel to a couple other tunes. R&B kind of grooves, those cruising grooves where you got to get out and with your sunglasses and a nice <laughs> drink there. Foster's organ sound is captivating. His solos are exciting. As I say, he conjures up these kind of moods and deep tones of the organ. Nice sidemen, uh, his son pitching in on drums. The Latin percussion is tasty. O'Neill's extremely tasty and varied guitar tones on both acoustic and electric. Piano and then the flamenco addition from Jerry Lopez gives some extra spice. Hey, and that's an entertaining album. Nice to be back after 36 years. Yeah, what, what, um, when I heard this, I, I went off on a Ronnie Foster listening adventure. Oh, cool. I, I really wanted to hear the earlier albums. I didn't really know them. Um, by the way, you mentioned um, that uh, yeah, there's some funny stuff about A Tribe Called Quest. They were sampling a lot of jazz albums. I think uh, the rapper Q-Tip's dad had taught him a lot about jazz, and he did that. And um, when they made their album, The Low End Theory, uh, they got Ron Carter, of all people, to play the bass on it. Oh. So he's even on that <laughs> album. Wow. Know? Now, when Ron Carter uh, agreed to appear on the album, he may, he had a condition. He said he doesn't want to be on an album where there's any swearing. So they oh. had to keep it clean. But here's wow. the thing. They, they really didn't. But you can oh. hear like these dropouts because they couldn't release the album with the swearing on it if he was going to play on it oh, so right. you can actually hear certain like words drop out. wow interesting but uh yeah it's pretty interesting and apparently that maybe it was on that album that that that, that track um which mystical brew what was it called i don't remember oh let's see yeah you know, i, I don't think know. it might have been that i don't one. know about I, this I kind of hip-hoppy kind of stuff yeah uh, but that was myself. a special era back back then the uh the native tongues hip-hop uh Groups. I guess no. I guess it, the album was uh, Midnight Marauders. Midnight Marauders. So that's the one that came yeah. after that. Okay, yeah. so it was a later one. Yeah. All right, but there is, is a lot of jazz on the low end theory as well. All right. Anyway, um, so yeah. I did that. I went back to listen to some of his early Blue Note albums. Curious to hear how he made his name. It was worth the time, of course, and I wish they were. I wish all those were still available as CDs. But we can still hear them, and that's a great thing. This album was really enjoyable. It was nice. He has a great sound. Again, he's playing a unique um, instrument as well, because you usually hear the Hammond, you know, B3, and that's, you know, he's using a different instrument. I like this sound a lot, and that's mm. what really sent me back to the older recordings, which which aren't as well, well, depends on what you think a good recording is. The sound was not... Um... As good as it was in the 60s, actually. Yeah, but, you know, jazz aficionados will argue that they're 
better recorded simply because they capture like a live sound, whereas albums today are more produced. But I thought this sounded fantastic. Yeah, just, Blue Note did a good job on this one, yeah. Yeah, this is enjoyable. I really like the sound. Very full sound, soulful. I guess I'm going to have to get this one too. Oh man, I don't have any room. <laughs> I, I gotta, I've got to start construction on my... Um, Costco sized warehouse so that I can yeah. store all my CDs in there. <laughs> anyway, Ronnie Foster, uh, you're still young. Give us some more. Let's let's get another yeah. one. Uh, let's have early another one. next sure. year. Yeah, yeah, we can do it. All right. Now the next two organists we've uh, heard previously on the podcast here, big fans of their work, uh, starting with Mr. Brian Charette from Connecticut and his new recording, Jackpot. This is on Seller Live label. Now, we first heard uh, Charette in episode 10 last year. That was his right. uh, previous, his own uh, release, uh, Power From The Air. That was on Steeplechase. And well, that was kind of a different outing. And he, that's the kind of thing he often gets uh, or works on these days. So that one stood out for having sax, flute, and bass clarinet kind of an interesting right. woodwind uh, section. And uh, more recently, we heard him with uh, Doug Webb, the right. woodwind master man. And he was fantastic on yeah. that record. Yeah, it was yeah. great on there. That was yeah. the message on uh, Positone Records that came out back in April. And when that was episode 65. And so here he is now being on Cellar uh, Live. He's uh, with the owner of that label, Corey Weeds. And, and they put out a lot of things uh Recently, uh, we've done some of them on the podcast. Anyway, Weed's a tenor sax player. And according to the album notes, which uh, Mike has already has this one in his possession. I, <laughs> so I, I like this player, yeah. Cause I, I like the yeah. Dub Web album so much that I had to go for this one. So after those kind of uh, more ensemble-oriented uh, or incorporating his sound with these woodwinds and things, he wanted to get back to a more traditional-sounding uh, recording uh, with some more swinging uh, beboppy tunes and a more kind of classic approach to his organ influences that include Jack McDuff, Melvin Ryan, Don Patterson, Larry Young, and of course, the great Jimmy Smith. So, rounding out, this as uh, I mentioned, Corey Weeds on tenor sax, the label owner. We've got uh, the great Ed Cherry on guitar and the mm. fabulous drumming of Bill Stewart here and all compositions by Brian Charette. We'll start out with Polka Dot pinup it's a hmm. great title uh this one has that kind of lee morgan rump roller kind of feel to it uh, i think jazz fans will know that tune it's a 12 bar blues but it's got a drum break on bar 10 all three instruments going into unison on the melody on this one and charrette providing harmonization and pulsing bass below uh, they go around the blues uh, melody twice uh, cherry adding more rhythmic fills the second time scratching there and it sounds like he's just itching to be the first up to solo and he is and that's a, <laughs> a bluesy tasty uh, solo nice double stops repeated rhythmic notes and a riff he gets a lot of mileage out of when he gets on it uh, building up the tension uh, Charette's next using that glassy tone he, uh, he often gets uh, some different tones that are unique and he starts with that glassy one that he often likes to start out uh, it gets uh, great percussive bluesy riffs and chords into a quite funky solo here uh, weeds rounds it out keeping it bluesy with a nice husky tone on tenor sax two more rounds of the melody the second with 
uh, fun fills from Charette, and they vamp out on the final phrase of the melody to finish it. Track two is called Tight Connection. It's an upbeat swinging tune, A-A-B-A form. Uh, Weeds takes the melody solo. Uh, there's nice snare hits below from Stewart. Charette gets the solo first. I like the compact percussive tone he uses here. Uh, the articulation is clear. His phrasing really swings. Weeds returns for a swinging solo with fluid phrasing, but lots of energy-packed lines. Cherry comes last with little short, tasty phrases, uh, some chord strums, syncopated double-stop lines, and nice singing melodies uh, out of the guitar. And then Weeds takes it uh, through the melody once more. Track three is called Triple Threat. It's triple meter, uh, as suggested. I'm not sure if it's actually three, four, or six, eight. I could feel it either way on this tune. Weeds handles the melody on tenor for the first two sections. Then they trade off phrases from organ to guitar to sax. So that could be part of the triple uh, to the way it's traded off there. Uh, once more around with the guitar doubling the sax on the melody. After the trade off, uh, Weeds launches into a solo. Nice husky and forceful blowing here. Uh, Stewart's really revving it up on the drums underneath. He's a really nice drummer. Cherry has a solo next with bouncy rhythmic phrases, punchy chords, more double stops, and then Charette plays some cool evenly phrased lines to start out in his solo. He mixes up triplets, other rhythmic figures, really nice. They go around the melody again, and then Weeds and Cherry trade off solos uh, through a fade-out ending, just the kind that Mike hates. <laughs> <laughs> in jazz, yeah. I hate it. In, yeah. you know, in popular music, it's fine, but I feel yeah. like, you know, yeah. in jazz, I think you should end your... You yeah, you always wonder what track. they played next. Yeah, having a fade out too kind of implies that the music is just going to be playing on into eternity. Like you're leaving the room, you yeah. know, because uh, you know, and then they're still playing, and they might be having a better time without you. So I always feel like I'm being left out <laughs> when the. <laughs> when the, right. the music I always fades. think of you when I hear a fade out. Yeah. <laughs> In jazz, right? I don't yeah, like jazz. the jazz fade. Yeah. That's on our list of things that we don't like. I think yeah. on the. Uh, on the yeah. uh, adult music podcast, along with jazz suites, although there are a few jazz suites that we like now, yeah. but um, I don't know. In general, it, it I don't only like works the idea when it's like uh, Boston's more than a feeling, kind of fading away into the ether. <laughs> well, either. if it's a pop, t- if it's a pop tune, you know, yeah, but yeah, it just kind of makes right. me feel left out. You know, yeah. you know, you gotta right. gotta go home now. <laughs> yeah. All right, track four is "Good Fortune." This is a cheerful samba tune, light clicking. Uh, in the drums from Stewart. Uh, Charette works out the melody himself with a percussive and clear tone. Cherry does some nice rhythm work behind that. Uh, after a couple times around, Weeds comes in for a smoothly articulated and phrased sax solo. Charette's solo's next uh, with the same clear style as the melody. In the right hand, he leaves the chord work to uh, Cherry's uh, light strumming here, so you get just that clear organ melody line. He ties that back to another round of the melody as well, and then Stewart gets some drum focus until the end uh, over chord work by Cherry uh, that Charette syncs up with lightly as they go uh, through it. Track five is Upstairs, a hard boppy swinging minor theme played with gusto by Weeds. Uh, It's got a 12-bar A section that repeats an 8-bar bridge and then one more A section. There's a nice driving organ bass from Charette underneath uh, who is up first for a solo. It's groovy, hard driving with tight drum feeding from Stewart underneath. Weeds returns for a sax solo getting in some bluesy licks, husky low register tones, but 
smooth lines. He connects it back into the melody, presses it to the end with a nice big minor organ chord right there at the end. And I got to mention, track five on the CD is Unmasked. And I'm wondering if they changed the uh, the track order for the, because you, you probably heard this on the uh, streaming, right? On Deezer, yeah. Um, okay. I got I if they Unmasked as number nine. Yeah, I got the the reversed on the CD. Uh, track five is unmasked, and uh, track nine is upstairs. Oh, it's kind of late. The, but speaking of track disorders, I should go back yeah. to the last uh, classical recording. Oh, really? The Quebec one, Transfiguration. When I was listening to that and taking notes, the Deezer. It, it's very <laughs> interesting. If you click on the album, and then you look at the number of tracks, I, I was starting to go through it. And then I realized that the basis for my notes was from the Presto listing of the CD tracks and they didn't match up oh, with, really? with Deezer. And so there's two tracks that are missing from oh, man. the Deezer album listing, but they're not missing from Deezer. They're on Deezer, correctly titled and also attributed to the group. They just don't show up when you click on the album. Anyway, if you listen to our playlist, I've researched for them and added them in the playlist properly so you can listen to it in the correct order. That's uh, weird, really? Yeah, it's weird. So, yeah. But it the, happens oh, once man. in a while, you know. That's an odd thing. Streaming, I'm telling you, always go for um although we earlier this year we got kind of messed up by the um wow, what was that piece called? The uh the mass one because there was a track yeah. there was an extra track on the streaming. Yeah. That's in the middle of the a middle movement in the piece that isn't on the CD and yeah. it was the one you didn't like. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even hear it. I still haven't yeah, heard it. One, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the drone yeah. mask, yeah, that one, Johan Johansson, yeah. the drone yeah. mask. Yeah, the, the CD is missing a track on okay. that one. I, I, was, I thought that was the oddest thing. And it's a 50-minute it's a recording. There's plenty yeah. of space. So If it's on a jazz one like this, it's pretty easy to figure out. But when it's on a classical um, yeah. release where half of the metadata is is missing... <laughs> Like, yeah. you know, on, on the streaming, you've got oh, two, two words though. from the title. You don't have the composer or the rest of the references of the thing. <sighs> yeah, so, that is a pain. Yeah, it took me a, quite a while to figure out exactly what was and wasn't there. Um, you could have just written to me. I would have, because I have the CD. Yeah. I could have just looked. And, well, All I was right. going to, I did write to Deezer and I told them that it was missing. So maybe they'll fix it. But uh, okay. anyway, if you're listening to the podcast now and you're planning to check out the recordings be sure when you go to the Transfigurations that you go to our podcast because I've playlist because I added them in there manually so that uh, they'd be in the right order. Okay, now back to Brian Charette. I want to, this is, here's another meta question. So Unmasked on the CD is track five and Upstairs is track nine and they're reversed right. on the, um, on Deezer. But here's the question. These are all instrumental tracks. How do you know, are, are the tracks... In, are, oh. are the tracks the same and the, the titles are just kind of mixed up we got to check this out I don't know I don't know yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> we won't know unless I go back and uh, I guess we get, we should do that could be my uh, project for tomorrow could I be I didn't yeah. actually know that was happening anyway, right. I'm curious mm. now anyway what <laughs> what we'll refer to as track six uh, <laughs> and possibly a highball next highball is right yeah, yeah that would be the same as um yeah. On the CD. Okay. It's a uh, hard-driving, minor-swinging, bluesy tune uh, with some harmonic twists uh, in there, too. Uh, so don't get too comfortable with that bluesy feel. They work up the excitement on an 8-bar intro. Weeds comes in midway. 
then Weeds plays the melody through with a charrette doubling in some spots and Weeds carries on into a solo, a good intensity, a thick sound swinging hard over the groove. Cherry's next, tasty, distinct bluesy phrases and some tricky licks in there this time. Uh, Charette mm-hmm. mixes up the rhythmic phrases on his own solo, has some blazing runs, but he keeps it bluesy all the time. Uh, Weeds returns for another time around the melody, and then they vamp out for a while for Stewart to do some drumming, ending on a rather relatively sweet chord to finish it up. Track seven, Vague Reply. Uh, Weeds sits out on this one. It's a fast-swinging 12-bar blues with some fun chords uh, added in and a syncopated final two bars that makes it stand out. Charette takes the melody around two choruses. Cherry solos first with some really creative rhythmic ideas. Charette's next, playing with high energy lines and then uh, another couple times around the melody. They stick on the last two bars, uh, repeating it for Stuart to jam out on the drums and he works up a frenzy there. Track eight, Jackpot, the title track. Uh, Weeds is back blowing the happy melody on this mid-tempo swinging title track. The last two bars of the A section is left for Stuart to fill on drums and then the B section has a fun contrasting mixed up rhythm of alternating notes that break up the swing feel. Weeds comes up first for a swinging and bluesy solo. Cherry follows with a fun also bluesy solo and Charette next keeps the bluesy ideas coming with nice hesitation in his phrasing sort of that sticky feel to the fingers moving uh, to give a little extra kind of uh, nuance to it. Sax, guitar, and organ then trade off fours with Stewart on a round uh, before they go through the melody uh, once more. And then track we'll refer to as Unmasked. Actually, uh, we should nine. we should refer to this track as Upstairs. And here's why. I'm looking at this oh. on Deezer now. Mm. And track five, which is labeled Unmasked on the um, CD, is four minutes and 16 seconds, as is this track. So... The hmm. sounds we hear apparently on the CD and the uh, Deezer are the same. And I'm going to guess that Deezer messed up the order of the tracks simply because the CD's printed out. And I would think they took right. more time to. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, so. I mean, we don't know, but we'll go for the CD. I'm going to look this up on Spotify and see yeah. how what order they have it in. See how it goes. While you talk. I've got but the anyway. link there. Yeah. Right. Anyway, this is another medium swinging tune, uh, another AABA form. Weeds blowing the happy melody. Uh, there are interesting movements in the harmony that keep it feeling fresh. Uh, Weeds solos first, sounding inspired, surfing over these chords. Uh, Cherry has a laid back solo on this one with tasty phrases. And Charette makes nice melody lines in his solo, connecting ideas expertly, mixing in some double time lines. And Weeds returns uh, for another run through the melody. So, uh, as uh, advertised, it's a more traditionally boppy, bluesy, and swinging recording. Uh, Charette makes the traditional sound exciting, though, with his catchy melodies, all original stuff here, and interesting harmonizations. Also, different feels. We've got some Latin and waltzing to go along with the swing. Cherry's guitar is always tasty. Stewart's drumming is precise and creative, and Weed's adds to the sound mix with his husky, enthusiastic, and swinging lines. Uh, Well done. Yeah, well, I'm looking on Spotify now, and they have the same track order as uh, Deezer, with Upstairs as the track five 
with the same uh, song or track length as the, the one labeled Unmasked on the CD. Now, the hmm. CD track list, there's only only list these songs once, so yeah, there's nothing doubling it in any booklet or anything. So now I'm thoroughly confused. I don't know what's going on. So yeah. obviously, this is the track list that was sent out to all the... Um, uh, streaming Digital services, releases, yeah, yeah. So this is we're gonna have to write to them and ask. Yeah, <laughs> you know? we gotta we gotta write to the label or to uh, Mr. Charette himself. He would know. Yeah, the titles of his own track. Anyway, let's get just to the to, bottom of it. Let's get to the bottom of this. This drives me crazy. Anyway, Charette's prior album, Power from the Air, was the more adventurous album, and I was kind of curious about what he was going to do here. Um, this album pays tribute to the groove-oriented jazz of the 1960s, I thought. You mentioned Lee Morgan earlier. Um, it's just interesting to hear him in this guise on a solo project. Um, he's not up front in the mix, surprisingly. I mean, he's the leader. You would think he would be. <laughs> okay, mm. But the, uh, the uh, sax is more prominent. On this uh, recording, I guess he's just uh, giving his uh, guest the bigger piece here. Well, he um, does own the record label, so. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah, All right. Charette is easily heard, though, and this is a refreshing listen with old school grooves, sounding very 1960s in its overall sound as well. The instruments are panned like into like different channels, more or less, with the guitar on the right, drums mostly on the left, which I found odd. I think drums should be in the center, shouldn't they? I don't know. Usually and organ towards sit. the center with sax a little more towards the right. It's a good feeling. Uh, old school swinging album. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I mean, the the spirit is traditional, but I thought Charette has a gift with melodies that just sort of sound familiar the first time you hear them. Mm-hmm. It's not that so much that they sound like something you've heard before. They just, they're good melodies. But he does do some interesting different harmonies that you might not expect under something that sounds really melodic. And I thought that that gave it a little bit of freshness uh, to the overall feeling. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And we're going to round it out with another player we mentioned before, we've heard before on the podcast. Uh, That's Mr. Pat Bianchi, also from New York, Rochester, New York, upstate. Yeah. It's around your neck of the woods, I think, right? Well, you know. More kind of. Kind of out a little bit further west. But uh, I know to you, New Yorkers, it's all upstate. <laughs> but upstate is a vast land uh, that uh, is pretty wide and right. spread out. Anyway, lots of uh, great musicians hail from Rochester. Because like all of upstate, there's not a lot to do for a good part of the year except practice music that's, when it's a That's why Russian wasteland. musicians are so great. Yeah. <laughs> Here he is on his uh, latest release, Working It Out. This is on 21H Records. Now, we heard Pat Bianchi back in episode 39, as I mentioned uh, earlier, with his Stevie Wonder music release called Something to Say. That was on Savant label. And it's really hard to find any information about this. A new recording. Uh, there's no listing. He doesn't even have it mentioned on his uh, website that I can find. So uh, I had to go check all the composers and uh, stuff uh, myself. But uh, other than Papianki on organ, we've got Mark Whitfield on guitar and Byron Landham on drums. A couple live tracks here. And we've got a nice combination of mainly tunes from uh, other jazz musicians uh, original compositions. And we're going to start out with uh, Silver Train, and this is by the uh, Canadian 
jazz keyboardist uh, Bernie Sineski, who has an album out this week that he plays organ on. I know him more as a piano player, uh, but I put it on Facebook. Uh, if you check our Facebook page, just came out this week, and it's Organ and Vibes, which is a combination you don't usually hear, but it sounds pretty cool. So check that out. Anyway, this is a Sineski tune, Silver Train. It's an interesting kind of structure. It's syncopated, quickly moving harmonic intro of eight bars. Uh, it'll surprise you and wake you up right away. It's a repeated eight bar minor melody phrase after that, and then the syncopated intro section and one more eight bars of that melody is kind of the structure of it. They're driving a really fast swing here with Landum cymbals. Bianchi rips into a solo. Whitfield's got chords going underneath with dark, jazzy-toned uh, guitar. Bianchi connects his ideas into really melodic phrases, including lots of topsy-turvy kind of uh, figures in there. Uh, his technique is really amazing. <laughs> his shows through this whole uh, recording. He catches on a bluesy riff to milk for a while, exploding into some crazy, frantic, higher register fast playing. He's really on fire right from the first track here. Uh, Whitfield follows fluid but well-articulated phrases, long lines, uh, until he digs in with a dirty, dirty, fast-picking mm. bluesy riff uh, that he plays until he's completely it self-destructs, basically, uh, going out with more extended harmonic ideas, and then some crazy fast repeated note picking on the way. Uh, Bianchi and uh, Whitfield trade eights with Landum going around uh, before hitting back on the melody for a final run-through and a stretched-out ending uh, with some final guitar licks. Track two, Little Bee's Poem. I know we've heard somebody else play this uh, on the podcast not too long ago, but this is a Bobby Hutcherson you know, vibes tune. Starts with a nice organ swelling on the intro into a lightly swinging 5-4 uh, meter That's this for this tune. Bianchi handles the melody with a dark tone, uh, the harmonies to this tune are very appealing. The organ solos, leaving a lot of spaces between the phrases. Underneath, Landum has light and crisp cymbal and hi-hat uh, going there. Bianchi gets more and more animated. Amazing double-time flying lines. Uh, when Whitfield comes in for his solo, uh, it's a bit laid back, uh, a big contrast uh, to the organ we just heard. But he works up to a lot of speedy ideas as well. Uh, his melodic ideas are really unique, <laughs> I found. Uh, his guitar play stands out uh, as not sounding like anyone else's, uh, sometimes surprising you. They work back through the melody, Bianchi holding out some big chords for Landum to get some drumming time in, under, and then some final licks for Whitfield. Track three, Straight Street, a John Coltrane tune. Uh, this is a fun, choppy Coltrane tune. Excellent tight drumming by Landum here That because the groove mixes up and you've got to hit a lot of these uh, syncopated phrases on the tricky melody, but he, uh, he does a really tight job of it. Whitfield swings a nice solo, adding some cool double stops. He doesn't shred anything to pieces on this one, though. Bianchi picks up the choppy rhythm idea to get his solo started connects his idea into bigger phrases as he goes along. Uh, some really blazing lines on the organ on this one and fun rhythmic figures. They take it around the melody, uh, make an emphatic ending with the final rhythmic chords. Track four, a fun tune from Jimmy Heath, Gingerbread Boy. A bluesy melody playing around a repeated syncopated chord that makes up the intro. Gets stuck in your head there. Whitfield solos first 
with some bluesy humor uh, and fun bends on this one. Bianchi has nice pulsing bass work going on uh, throughout. Uh, Whitfield plays on and on, uh, showing off plenty of fast, fully automatic, as in weapon picking <laughs> before he <laughs> finishes this solo. Uh, Bianchi gets a nice percussive sound on the organ here, rocking out repeated bluesy riffs and fiery lines. Uh, they have more fun finishing up the melody, repeating the falling line at the end, and ending with a big organ hit. And we're going to get a live track uh, theme for Ernie from, uh, by Fred Lacey. Warm and lush organ intro here, swelling tones, darting lines. Uh, it gets into a slow groove with Landum's cymbal, pulsing organ bass from Bianchi. Uh, Bianchi works the organ uh, melody with finesse here, leaving lots of space. Whitfield adding dark-toned chords and little fills uh, underneath that. Uh, Bianchi shows off a really nice touch with varied dynamics in his solo here. He's got skittering lines, uh, an enthusiastic rip uh, thrown in there between more subtle melodic ideas as well. The crowd really likes it. You can hear them in the background. There's a tasty Whitfield solo here as well. Fluid lines, even when he's picking like crazy. A nice swelling melody uh, ending by Bianchi and some final fast figures from Whitfield and the crowd goes wild. Track six, Ernie Wilkins's Dizzy's Business. Uh, a rhythmically and harmonically tricky bop tune. Uh, they work through it with ease though. Great interplay between the organ and guitar here. Whitfield's on fire, speedy lines soloing out of the gate and racing all the way to a big bluesy finish in his solo. Bianchi's spirited as well in his solo, chaining together lots of great boppy lines at super high speed, but he stops for some bluesy bumps in the road on the way. The final melody uh, run through is tight, but rather subdued after the intensity of the solos on this tune. We're going to get a little bit more uh, mellow in uh, Bill Evans' tune, Turn Out the Stars. Some toms and bass beat with uh, muted guitar, get this one moving. Bianchi introduces the melody down low and warm in the register. It does get a little bit more chugging along, Bianchi keeping the melody to a low simmer. I like the different uh, groove Landum has on the drums. It's mostly tom with just a little light cymbal, so you don't get that full kind of drum dominance going on. Uh, Bianchi gets a long time to build up his solo with a nice connection of melodic ideas and different rhythms. And Whitfield has a bouncy solo here with tight rhythms. They go through the melody once more, and they have a minor vamp out uh, for Whitfield to do some extra bluesy and fluid soloing until it fades away. <laughs> <laughs> I always write that at the end. The piece fades at the yeah. end. <laughs> it's like, have something to get angry about. <laughs> right. Then we're going to get the second and, uh, well, it's the last track on the album, and on the one standard here. Uh, nobody Else But Me, a Hammerstein and Kern tune. Uh, an exciting stop time intro with intense organ into then what's a contrasting, easy feeling treatment of the melody uh, over a slow and light brushwork drum beat by Landum. Uh, Bianchi has a straight and dark tone to start things out with his soloing. It kicks up into a more driving swing and then Landum cymbals uh, add more intensity and feed Bianchi who rips out some impossibly speedy lines. 
Hmm. And yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, explodes into a huge swelling tone. That kind of thing, Mike Ladon told us about. You know, exploding. Right. Uh, right. That really lights it up. I mean, this is live. If you were in the crowd, it must have. That organ must have just like lit up the room. Hmm. Cheers of approval are heard from the crowd. Whitfield's been playing it cool uh, with the rhythm along the way, but he starts out relaxed in his solo. Uh, he has a lot of fast, fluid lines, ringing and pearly. I call them pearly because they get this rounded kind of thing that are bluesy ringing figures on guitar. Uh, the last one of which uh, he shreds to pieces <laughs> and then hmm. goes into a chord solo over. Uh, Bianchi adds some more textures for a final run through uh, the melody and a huge tone on the final chords of the organ with that nice swell. And that ends up the recording. So I thought uh, it's a very nice collection of mostly originals by other jazz greats. The energy is bursting at the seams from every tune. I don't think there's anyone who can rip runs in like complex bebop lines on organ faster than Pat Bianchi. He has some amazing technique, great sound. It is always exciting to listen to. And this, all the energy on all these tunes are great. Whitfield's unique guitar style <laughs> and uh, Landham's locked in drumming. Uh, add that in. You've got another exciting release from Bianchi, even if there's not a lot of information out online about it yet. Yeah, and also one of the, the disappointing things is this isn't out on a CD, at least not yet. I yeah. certainly hope it's going to come out. This was probably my favorite of the three uh, organ, jazz organ albums we heard this week. And um, yeah, I liked all three. So, uh, But mm. this one was really, I felt it was really special. There's like, I like the full organ sound yeah. that Bianchi gets and the classy guitar playing too. Really nice. The two complement each other really well. High energy, yeah. I like the way Bianchi stretched out with his sounds. We heard some genuine finger virtuosity from him as well, which we don't get a lot of on the uh, the jazz organ. Really, they really go more for the sound and feels. A yeah. lot of virtuosities in the pedal and the feet too. The pedals, yeah. you know, the bass. Um, there's plenty of variety of approaches on this album. Ah, oh, put it out on a CD. What are you doing? <laughs> they might be a little behind. That's all. Right yeah. to this week and see what's going on with this. Yeah. Yeah, now before we end, uh, I'm going to give the final verdict on the uh, Brian Charette album. I looked at the Bandcamp site, and uh, that is the same listing as the uh, all the all the uh, streaming sites. So I'm guessing five, track five is indeed upstairs, and track hmm. nine is going to be unmasked. I think they just printed it wrong on the CD. Oh, um, okay. I, I, you can write to him directly on the Bandcamp site, so I sent him a quick message asking. Okay. So we'll see. He'll probably write back by next week. We'll, we'll find out, out next week, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, announce that yeah <laughs> we'll announce that oh because because we're really anal here at the adult <laughs> music podcast because we want you to know the truth yeah we gotta get to <laughs> the truth yeah. we, we gotta give you the accurate information yeah that's right yeah yeah so it's the, you know there seems to be just organ recordings coming out left and right these days mm. and uh, sure we gotta are, get right? an organ episode in i think this is like our fourth one <laughs> so far yeah, we've done a, quite a lot of a lot them. of organ yeah yeah that, that, they've surpassed the French episodes now I think you know, so. in classical music yeah. I don't know if you don't get enough from this as I say um, you'll probably realize that the uh, that Silver Train is quite a cool tune especially right from the opening by Bernie right. Sineski so uh, go to Facebook as I said and check out that new release uh, from him on organ I haven't heard him play organ uh, before only piano and uh, so organ and vibes sounds pretty cool i'll check that out and if maybe if we get a vibes episode in i'll get that in with that somewhere along the way 
as we said at the beginning, uh, after this episode comes out on Monday, you've got the interview with uh, Rudrish yeah. Mahanthapa coming out on Thursday, Japan time, Wednesday afternoon, uh, U.S. time in between in Europe. So be sure to check that out. It was a really good conversation. I think we got him to talk about stuff he probably wasn't expecting right. and hasn't talked about in other interviews. But I think that's important, though. I think you really think so. do have to go in there with some odd yeah. questions. You know, I hope he has yeah. as much fun yeah. as we did. And, See, he seemed uh, to. He seemed pretty yeah. uh, interested. He was in really fun to talk to. He was very gracious at the end, yeah, too. Gracious. He kind of gave us a nice uh, yeah. so, know, compliment. Um, I hope mm. that um, you enjoy that interview, too. And uh, next week's going to be a little bit different. It sure is. We got a special theme. Yeah, we're going to. We're not uh, really sure what it is yet, but we do yeah. have the recordings ready. I think it's. I think it's uh, poetry and passports. Uh, we're going to do poetry a little, and passports. Okay. Yeah, or passport to poetry. Poetry. But, something but it's like not just that. poetry. It's it's no. old poetry, like medieval yeah. times poetry. We've got Dante. We've got Rumi. Yeah. We've got some flamenco guitar. Yeah, we got Middle yeah, Eastern which goes sounds. Back. Yeah. I've got um, Middle Eastern sounds. Yeah. What else have I got there? Uh, I've got some, well, Egyptian-inspired sounds uh, in America. Mm -hmm. And I won't call it Latin jazz because I wouldn't put it in that category. It's some more uh, authentically Colombian music uh, working on sort of natural themes and things. So it's going to be a bit of a world adventure. Oh, and South African-inspired things. So okay. uh, Actually, the... Playlist's already up on uh, Deezer. I got it up early. Just you got it to up get early it today. Yeah. yeah. So um, mm. you can check that out even before this episode uh, for the first time ever, I think. Uh, so yeah. we've got all that coming on for next week. A little bit of world music influence. And uh, well, the summer is still young. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff to get to. Yeah. So a lot to look forward to in uh, episode 77 and beyond. But be sure to definitely check out the. Uh, the interview with Rudresh Mahantapa uh, before you get to uh, the next episode. We'd like to thank um, Fast Signs of Staten Island, as always, for our brilliant glowing neon logo and all the listeners uh, who stick with us. Uh, remember to check us out on Facebook. Uh, send us an email message. We'll be sure to reply to you. And, uh, well, I think actually next week's episode we're gonna maybe do that one live yeah we're yeah. heading to the uh the uh what do we call it the uh mountain lair the mountain lair week. for a yeah. bit of barbecue music listening and uh face-to-face -face recording so that'll be good to do because mm. uh, it's been a while there it's been a while yeah yeah a lot to look forward to so thanks for listening check out the interview and we'll see you again next week for a little world tour and uh, poetic elegance on episode 77.